And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time of day when, uh, and night when anything can happen on this show, and uh, many times it actually does. I mean, tonight's show is going to be classic. It's going to be quite amazing. We're, we're delving into a territory that uh, I'm frankly not very up to speed on, and as my uh, grandmother used to say, if you don't know what you're talking about, find somebody who does, and I have, because I'm going to be joined tonight by uh, Georgia Lambert, who is our resident metaphysician. She is co-hosting tonight on this very interesting and extraordinarily provocative subject of reincarnation. And I must say that I'm going to have a couple of stories to tell uh, during the show. I'm not going to, you know, kind of preview things now, but uh, stay tuned because you're going to hear some things that I think are important for you to hear. Again, this is in the realm of uh, evidentiary material that is kind of like uh, one could say it's in um, in uh, the uh, the gray basket. So maybe we can move it a little bit more to one side or the other tonight, and we shall see. Before we get to my guests, and uh, we will give a more uh, uh, appropriate introduction momentarily, uh, we got a couple of news items. If you uh, go to the other side of midnight.com, if you're new to the show, we have a section called Radio with Pictures, which is what the internet allows us to do radio these days. So if you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says rather boldly, Reincarnation Compelling New Evidence with my guest, Daniel Pinchbeck. I don't know how uh, George's name got dropped. We'll probably be able to change that momentarily. Anyway, um, that painting, by the way, is a painting of Kintheas. It's called Transcendence. And if you want a copy, it's it was so appropriate for tonight that when when I realized we were going to be doing this show, I said to Kintheia, I want that painting. And she found that painting. And so that painting, Kintheia's original, which I saw a long time ago in her studio, in the, uh, in the flood, well, in the canvas. Anyway, that painting is our, ten- our banner tonight, and it is very appropriate. So maybe you want to have a copy of that painting. I don't know whether she's offering it or the original, but uh, you you can get hold of her and you can find out directly. Anyway, um, news tonight, if you go to that banner and click on it on the uh, homepage, it will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items. Click on my items. And my first news item has to do with what's been going on in New York and New Jersey, where I lived for many, 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 many years. They had an extraordinary catastrophe, 48 People in the Northwest, in New Jersey, in Connecticut, and in New York itself, died because of flooding, flash flooding, which we're unfortunately very familiar with how, out here in the West. They always warn you, do not go into the Arroyas if there are thunderstorms, because even though it may be dry where you are, wait a half hour and it won't be. Well, in New York, it didn't take half an hour. It took minutes, and low-lying sections you know, deep enough to hide cars, which had to be, you know, evacuated extraordinary speed and people left lights on and blinkers. And you can see one of those images there on the banner that connects to the um, Washington Post analysis 
of what made the New York and uh, Northeast floods so serious, so catastrophic, and so fatal. And it's part of this problem we've had in this nation for many, many decades. We've been building our infrastructure to a past standard, and the environment has changed very dramatically. In fact, uh, it was the remnants of Hurricane Ida, which actually swept north uh, east uh, after coming on shore on land a little under a week earlier. It deteriorated in terms of winds to a tropical storm, which is winds around 40 miles an hour, but it was the extraordinary amount of rain that fell, like three inches plus in one hour in Central Park. I mean, I saw heavy rain in New York when I was you know, living in Jersey, but nothing like that. And of course, it was that rain and the fact that there had been 10 days of previous rains from a hurricane that came ashore in Long Island, you know, almost two weeks before, Henri, which had saturated the ground. And so when the uh, Ida uh, torrential rains came, there was no place for it to go. So it ran off, it ran to the rivers, the rivers ran to the ocean, the streets of New York filled, ran to the ocean, Uh, The streets of Philadelphia, the streets of suburbs in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, likewise. And so we had 48 fatalities that should not have occurred. Uh, This is a significant indicator of what everyone is talking about, and no one knows how to really quantify yet, which is this kind of amorphous concept of global warming. I saw a number the other day that for every one degree centigrade that the atmosphere warms it can hold something like seven percent more water vapor well that water vapor doesn't go you know doesn't magically disappear it has to go somewhere and it it rains out in these torrential storms particularly when you have a vast cyclonic system like the deterioration of ida so this is not the first and last time they're talking about this as a once in 500 year or once in thousand year event? Uh Uh-uh. The week before when Henri had come ashore, the uh, Central Park uh, facilities of the Weather uh, Service had recorded the second highest amount of rain within one hour. And that time it was the highest. And then a week later, Ida tops the record. This is not rare. This is now going to become commonplace And all kinds of changes are going to be necessary just to maintain the status quo, just to maintain life in these conditions. Because most of us never look around and we never kind of think about, are we in an Arroyo? Well, in a man-made canyon, you can live in a garden apartment in a basement. And like a a mother and her son, uh, a few days ago, you can drown. So this is going to be our situation moving forward. We will be having some programs discussing much more technical aspects of this and what you can do to safeguard yourself. One of the first things you can do is find out, are you in a low-lying area? Are you on a hill? Um, When was the last time your location flooded um, with all the recent rain? Has it become iffy now? In other words, situational awareness. And this applies to the entire country. Now, 3,000 miles away out west, uh, we've been watching what's called the Caldor Fire, 
which has become the destructive uh, in the history of fires in uh, California, I believe, in the last several years. Um, for a few days, the Caldor Fire was severely threatening South Lake Tahoe, and uh, it, it was kind of like a miracle that the uh, 5,000 firefighters who've been working around the clock um, were able to keep it subdued. The fire burns things like more than 20,000 acres in a mere 24 hours. And on Monday, the firefighters were working all fronts when they had a respite from the weather, and they were able to keep the fire at bay uh, to the edge of the neighborhoods in Christmas Valley, where it shot embers over Highway 89, starting spot fires in the forest just above the houses on the other side of the road, continuing its burn east. This is one of the few fires in the history of uh, fires in California, which has burned across the uh, uh, Sierra Nevadas, has actually moved from California into Nevada. And so it's not out. It's only about 25% contained. So if you want the details, click on that link, the Caldor Fire, and the details are there. Moving planets. This week, there's a much more positive story coming out of NASA. NASA's Perseverance rover successfully cored its first rock, collected its first sample. I mean, they'd done a similar effort about a month ago, and when they looked in the drill hole, it had disappeared. And uh, this is not a Mars show tonight, so I won't speculate as to what happened, but there are some very interesting indications that during the drilling, because of the force exerted uh, by the rover on the surface, the actual rover shifted position, and it was that shifting of position that caused the failure of collecting the first sample. Well, they've now successfully cored its first rock. They've got a sample, and uh, we will hear more of that in the coming days and weeks to come. Item number four I'm going to hold for during the program because without context, you're not, you're not going to uh, kind of understand what we're getting at. So let's you know, introduce our guest. My first guest tonight is Daniel Pinchbeck. He's an American author currently living in New York City with a passion for understanding consciousness. And he's the author of, among many other books, Breaking Open the Head, a psychedelic journey into the heart of contemporary shamanism. Also, um, uh, Return of Quetzalcoatl, published in September of 2007. And he does so many other interesting things. In fact, uh, uh, tonight, I believe, as you s click on the fast links and scroll down to uh, Daniel's items, his most recent work is called, I love this title, When Plants Dream. Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism, and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance. Um, our other guest tonight, who's actually uh, pinch-hitting in this experimental position as co-host, is Georgia Lambert. As I said at the top of the show, uh, Georgia has so many credits to her, uh, her uh, uh, coterie of arms, among the one that's most important for us tonight. She spent 10 years on the teaching staff of the Philosophical Research Society under Manley Palmer Hall. And she, in 89, she became the first woman to address a Scottish Rite research group 
on the higher degrees of masonry. And um, in 95, 96, and 97, she gave presentations to the Pacific Southwest Regional Conclaves of the Rosicrucian Order. And there are many other credits. You can go and read both of them in detail on the other side of midnight on the guest page. And so without further ado, Georgia, welcome to the hot seat. And Daniel, welcome to the other side. Good to be here. Thank you, Richard. Good to be back. Well, you know, this is one of those evenings where I'm going to try to be kind of quiet because this is an area of interest that I must say, uh, when Robin died uh, two and a half years ago, can you believe tonight is literally the two and a half year anniversary? When Robin died, obviously, I became a lot more interested in the idea of life after three-dimensional existence. And uh, later in the morning, I'm going to you know, provide some, some anecdotal information that may be helpful. But in the meantime, Daniel, how did you and when did you get interested in this very thorny and still very controversial subject of reincarnation? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I guess, um, um, I mean, my first book, Breaking Open the Head, was on psychedelic shamanism, and uh, I was a journalist in New York, and I'd grown up in a kind of secular, you know, scientific worldview uh, kind of environment, and um, I had a sort of existential or spiritual emergency in my late 20s, where um, I just realized that, you know, the sort of materialist philosophy the idea that consciousness was entirely based on the brain and there couldn't be anything like a soul or a spirit was this sort of very dark cloud kind of hanging over, you know, my life and the world and basically what everybody that I knew, you know, believed in and so on, what my teachers believed in and professed and so on. And I, I began to ask myself, you know, had I, is there, you know, did I really know this for a fact? that, um, you know, consciousness was just based on the brain and that death would therefore be the obliteration or annihilation of any type of, you know, kind of uh, possibility? Or was it something that I'd really just received from, um, you know, authorities in a way and, and from my environment? And I remembered my psychedelic experiences in college with mushrooms and LSD as uh, suggestive of there being other levels or layers of psychic reality. So that began the journey that led to breaking open the head, my first book, where I went to West Africa, I went to tribal initiation, Gabon, with the Bwiti tribe. Uh, and uh, even in that experience, uh, with the, you know, in Gabon, I had a, um, you know, one, one of the shamans said that he could see my mother's mother hovering over me and that her spirit was still with me and kind of clinging to me and so on. And that was already very extraordinary because I hadn't told anybody anything about my background this was just in the, you know, the deep jungle in Gabon. And uh, it was an inkling that, um, that, first of all, there are these kind of transpersonal levels of reality and that um, there are, you know, spirits, souls that, that linger in, in some way. But all of this was new information for me. So, yeah, it was, it's always, you know, from my first book till now, kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's been a big quest for me. Like, you know, are there other dimensions of consciousness, of reality? Could the soul or the spirit exist in some form uh, after death? Uh, and, and, and what what could that existence be like? You know, is there some kind of afterlife realm? Is there reincarnation? And so many, you know, esoteric and indigenous cultures around the world uh, believe there is. Uh, so, yeah, so that's been a through line uh, ever since. So this has been a decade-long quest. 
Uh, no, it's been more than 20 years uh, that I've been like, you know, back and I mean, sometimes veering away from it. But I mean, you know, one of my, I mean, in, in the you know preface, you were talking about the ecological crisis, you know, climate change and global warming, and you know, the, the sort of uh, you know the reason we're in this ecological crisis in a way is because of um, kind of the scientific materialist worldview. Uh, which leads to, you know, mass consumerism, overconsumption, everyone just trying to get what they can for this life because they think that this life is all there is, uh, which leads to kind of over-extraction, over-exploitation of the environment. So actually, I don't really believe that we can, as a, as a species, kind of reckon with the crisis that we're in without addressing the sort of metaphysical roots of that crisis, which is the uh, the limited, you know, paradigm of scientific materialism. Hmm. Uh, when you say limited, you mean in terms of a database or in terms of modalities? You know, how scientists uh, well, ask the I mean, question. I, well, I mean that actually uh, it's, it's – it's, um, I think that there's, you know, lots of very, very good evidence, you know, which I presented in, in my various books. Uh, and many other, you know, thinkers and, and, and scientists have also now explored in great depth. That um, you know that isn't the whole story. That, that that you know there are you know psychic phenomena. There's you know consciousness can exist outside of the body, and you know astral travel, near-death experience, uh, and um, you know there's very good data and evidence for uh, you know kind of reincarnation, um, you know mediumship, you know communication with spirits of the dead uh, who convey like you know extraordinary information. Um, you know, relevant only to those people and so on. So there, there, there's a huge, there's a huge kind of backlog of, of you know, data that um, goes against the scientific materialist hypothesis. I mean, the, the hypothesis that, um, you know, the, uh, that, that, you know, the world was, you know, material, material only uh, was also just a hypothesis. And, um, you know, what I've been exploring in recent work in this essay that I did for a competition and what I wrote about in the 2012 book and other books is um, that actually the, the more likely, um, you know, kind of parallel, you know, the, 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 more, the more likely hypothesis is that actually consciousness is the fundamental reality of what we experience as matter, physical reality, the physical universe is somehow a, a projection or an extension of this this fundamental ground of consciousness. Hmm. Tomorrow morning, actually at noon, your time, East Coast time, you're beginning a four-part seminar, which has an extraordinarily intriguing title, Crossing the Threshold. And the graphic, which is uh, your item number one in Radio Pictures, is not too bad either. Um, how long have you been working on this, and how can people... Uh, uh, join the seminar. I think you've got a, a virtual system set up where people can join from anywhere in the world. Talk about why you're doing it, why you're doing it now, and how people can find out how to be part of it. Yeah, and uh, you know, first of all, I mean, the, the price for the four sessions, the full price is two hundred dollars. But for your listeners, you know, I can offer like a fifty percent off in, the, in, the, in this last moment. Super. So if they use if, if they use the code Crossing Sale fifty. Uh, you know, the number five zero, uh, crossing sale 50, uh, when they go to the website, which is the liminal Institute, uh, they, they can, they can get the course for a hundred dollars for half off. So the, 50, well, as I met, so the 50 would stand you know, for 50% if we need a mnemonic 50%. remembrance. Yeah, Exa exactly. Exactly. 
So, yeah, so, so, I mean, as I said, this has been, uh, you know, something that, you know, has really been kind of, um, yeah, going back 25 years, you know, really, you know, I've, I've, I've been, you know, really trying to understand, you know, are there these possibilities, these other dimensional realities beyond the physical realm? And, um, you know, I've, I've kind of looked at that in, in two ways. I mean, there's a um, Sufi mystical philosopher, Friedhof Schuon, uh, who talks about how the you know the, the ways to answer these deep questions? There's like two paths. There's, there's you know revelation, you know, which is direct experience, and kind of intellectualization, and, and you know using the intellect, you know, reason and reflection. And uh, you know, for me, the, the work with psychedelics, uh, with ayahuasca, you know, DMT, uh, iboga, um, psilocybin, uh, and so on, have been sort of the, the revelation path. And then looking at the whole history of thought around these topics, um, you know, the, the great work of people like Carl Jung and, and, and Rudolf Steiner and, you know, Amit Goswami more, more recently have provided kind of the, the sort of intellectual basis for, um, yeah, for, 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 for really having a different perspective on the, on the nature of reality. Hmm. Georgia, the way this works is, <clears throat> given that your experience in this dwarf's mind, you jump in at any time if you want to extend <laughs> a, a question that I've asked, or you want more clarification, or is, as you surely will, have your own. So do you have anything at the top you want to ask Daniel? Well, I'm very intrigued with uh, where studies on reincarnation are going now. You know, uh, back in the 1950s in esoteric thought, it was said in many quarters that um, this last age, the age of religion and philosophy, has produced one approach to reality. But in this new age that we're moving into, it'll be scientific proof of things, including life after death, continuity of consciousness. This sort of really started... Um, Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in fact, in 1911, there was a doctor in London, uh, a doctor, Jay uh, Kilner, who wrote a book called The Human Atmosphere. It was later changed to the, to the title Human Aura. And he was really one of the first to focus on the scientific proof of these other layers of reality. He developed... Um, uh, a set of goggles, which was made from a dicyanide dye, which is a purple sort of cobalt blue coal tar dye, which is toxic and hard to get a hold of. But he made glasses out of it, and he used those glasses to uh, give anybody with normal vision the ability to see the subtle body, the aura. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and his his book is is still in print. You can find it very easily. But he, at being a doctor, was interested in the medical side and was looking at, for instance, in cases of illness, does it show up in the aura? Yes, it does. In pregnancy, there's a double aura. Yes, there is. Um, you know, this kind of thing. But I don't think... I've never been able to find any written stuff about him applying it to watching people at the moment of death. 
And this would be a very interesting thing to look at. You know, most of us old timers, I include myself there, you know, we remember stories of Bridie Murphy. And of course, we know about hypnotic regression and that kind of thing. But it would be really interesting to, to know more about what's being done now on the scientific side to kind of move this um, expansion of awareness forward. Well, I'm hoping. Yeah, I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't know. Any, I don't know. I don't know anything about uh, you know the, the, this this guy that you just mentioned. So I don't know how to evaluate if he actually had a technology that was you know viable. It doesn't seem like it's something that's been carried forward. Um, the, probably the most compelling evidence around uh, reincarnation has been compiled by uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson from the University of Virginia. Uh, he wrote a number of books. One is called "Where Biology and Reincarnation Intersect," and uh, he and then, and then the people who followed after him have focused on uh, spontaneous past life recall in early childhood. Uh, they found, uh, you know, children all over the world uh, between the ages of like three, four, and let's say eight, uh, who suddenly remember a lot about a, a previous life. Uh, and um, in, in, in many cases, he was able to visit these children. Uh, and in some cases, they were able to bring these children back to the place where they remembered being from before, finding the uh, families that they remembered being part of, and uh, also finding that there were often uh, significant kind of uh, marks, like birthmarks. Um, a, lot, a lot of these children who have very dramatic uh, past life recall in early childhood it turns out that the, the, the last life was a life that ended abruptly, maybe at a younger age, maybe through violence. So it's almost like their reincarnating soul had more of a push to get back into the game as quickly as possible. And uh, so often they'd find that if the, uh, the child might have like a significant birthmark on their neck, uh, they would find that the uh, person that they remembered being their reincarnation of had died from like a blow to the neck or something. Oh, so wow. uh, he documented a, a, a great... Um, yeah, in great depth of hundreds of cases, actually, uh, in a number of books, including where biology and reincarnation intersect. Yeah, I've heard uh, a lot about the the uh, idea of birthmarks uh, being uh, an echo of something that has gone on in the past. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Daniel, that there have been a lot of studies about uh, children remembering past lives and even describing uh, their village or whatever. And it doesn't just happen in third world countries. Wasn't there recently uh, a, a, a little boy that remembered being a man drew uh, drawings of the plane that he went down in during World War II? Yeah, I don't remember that exact case. I mean, I mean, you know, sort of like I'm much more like a synthesizer. So there's ton, I mean, there's uh, tons of cases in the West, also in the United States, um, uh, in native, you know, native indigenous communities and so on. Uh, and then, yeah, there's many, many that happen in cultures that do have a kind of uh, knowledge of reincarnation. But yeah, I mean, uh, there's, you know, there's you know, many books that are really chock full of uh, these, these examples from all over the world, including the United States. The one, um, the one guys, I mean, the one guys that I'm most intrigued with for obvious reasons is the uh, Russian kid who seems to remember when he lived on Mars and his detail his descriptions is is fascinating and I haven't had the time to kind of focus but to compare even some of the superficial things that have kind of leaked out through the Russian press with what we figured out 
the, 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 the match is eerie, 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 eerie. Hey, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Daniel Pinchbeck, who uh, opens a seminar, a virtual seminar, uh, tomorrow on the Internet. You can go to the other side of midnight, click on the uh, links to Daniel's items. That will take you to item number one. That is his page. It's for the seminar. Gives you the background, and he's giving you a 50% discount uh, if you uh, log on during or after the show up until, I guess, noon tomorrow, probably even past noon, and register, uh, let him know that you're part of this. And give us that code again, Dan. Uh, yeah, uh, it is um, Crossing Sale 50, Crossing Sale 50. Super. Okay, you're on the other side of midnight. We shall return to my guest momentarily. Remember that song, Highwayman, with um, Christopherson and Johnny Cash? Seemed appropriate. We shall return. Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade. Many a soldier shed his life blood on my blade. The masters hung me in the spring of 25. But I am still alive. I was a sailor. I was born upon the tide. I did a I sailed a schooner around the Horn of Mexico. I went lost the world to face a little blow. And when the yards broke off, they said that I got killed. But I'm living still. I was a damn builder. It's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So look, you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so 
I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Aneta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. But I'm living still. I was a damn builder Across the river deep and wide where steel and water did collide. A place called Boulder on the wild Colorado. I slipped and fell into the wet concrete below. They buried me in that great tomb that knows no sound. But I'm still around. I'll always be around. around. I fly a star across the universe divide, and when I reach the other side, I'll find a place to rest my spirit if I can. Perhaps I may become a highwayman again. Or I may simply be a single drop of rain. But I will remain. I'll be back again, and again, and again, and again, and again. You know, for as long as I can remember, that song has stuck in my memory. Four major, major country western stars, each with their own slant. The idea of continuity, the idea that we do return. Um, Daniel, in 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 your research, um, is the connection of consciousness beyond three dimensions? You know, what happens after we die, the afterlife, you know, wherever we go. And the idea of reincarnating back in three-dimensional reality, are those two inseparably connected or do only some people return? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, you know, so I don't pretend to, to, to you know, to, to have some kind of absolute knowledge or whatever. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a journey to try to understand these things. But I mean, I think um, we have to very, very take very seriously, uh, you know, the, the the evidence and data from some cultures that um, are more advanced than ours in terms of having kind of a science of reincarnation, uh, particularly, uh, you know, Buddhist cultures, particularly Tibetan Buddhist cultures. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, B- Buddhism has this whole idea that, um, 
you know, there's a, I mean, you know, I don't know if you know the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where there are these different bardo realms. Uh, so essentially, um, you know, you, you reincarnate in one of these different realms, either, either as a, uh, you know, animal, a hungry ghost, a human, uh, you know, uh, demigod, uh, god, or in kind of like a hell realm as a, as a demon. And, um, you know, kind of what, you know, how you, how you've used your, your, you know, life as a human kind of determines, you know, what your incarnational pathway would be. Uh, but, but as a human, you also have a precious opportunity, uh, according to Tibetan Buddhism, which is to attain, you know, realization or moksha or enlightenment and, um, kind of escape from the, the wheel of karma and reincarnation altogether. And, um, you know, I think that we can begin to understand that, uh, through kind of like, you know, kind of a scientific, uh, model. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, my favorite, you know, kind of effort to put together that model so far is by this physicist, Amika Swami, who wrote a book called Physics of the Soul. Uh, and, um, yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, there, you know, this idea that essentially, um, you know, that, you know, the, the, the physical universe is a projection of a uh, indivisible, uh, unitary uh, field of consciousness. Uh, but that indivisible unitary field of consciousness can only know itself, can only understand itself by, uh, you know, going through this evolutionary process and creating uh, containers, you know, kind of separate, you know, the, the illusion of separate identity, the illusion of separate beings. So hence, hence the existence of human beings who are able to reflect and seek revelation and use their, you know, intellectual capacities to understand nature of, of divinity and the nature of, of reality in itself. Uh, and, um, you know, and also have that capacity to you know, kind of, you know, through meditation and other esoteric practices, kind of really go back to a non-dual state of realization. Uh, at, at which point, if, if, if they've mastered that, um, you know, at the point of death, they have the opportunity to no longer uh, reincarnate and sort of just enter into the nirvana or, or, or the voidness or the totality or the, the undifferentiated, divisible consciousness state. Uh, however, in Buddhism, they also have this idea of the bodhisattva, and so the idea is that uh, you know many beings who could choose enlightenment actually instead choose to return uh, to the human realm to uh, you know out of empathy and compassion for suffering beings, and um, and kind of you know help evolve consciousness, uh, lift lift consciousness up you know towards you know a future state where the, the entire universe uh, of suffering matter is redeemed through, uh, you know, realization and revelation. Hmm. The universe of suffering matter. That sounds uh, kind of Catholic. <laughs> well, that's the Buddhist view. I mean, I mean, the first noble truth, according to the Buddha, was, uh, you know, life is suffering, uh, existence is suffering. Uh, you know, but one thing I've actually argued in, in, in my work, particularly in the 2012 book, is that that view is not, um, you know, the, the, the Western approach is a little bit different. Uh, and that actually we tend to see life as not just suffering. We, we tend to be more interested in kind of the, the evolutionary potential and the evolutionary processes. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's a slightly different kind of maybe dharma even that we have in the West compared to, compared to some of the Eastern ideas. So that, that, that sort of brought us to, yeah, sort of the dynamism of, uh, you know, post-industrial civilization, transhumanism, technology, kind of this, this thirst to know and this belief in, 
evolutionary progress, which has both its uh, you know, negative and positive sides. I mean, there's a number of thinkers who think that it's completely negative. There's the traditionalist occult thinkers like uh, you know, Julius Evola and Reni Guinan, who've been kind of picked up by the right wing, but they uh, believe that we're just in the Kali Yuga, that the entire you know, Western kind of emphasis on evolution and development is, is a fraud. And that actually, um, you know, the only hope for the civilization is to be destroyed and, and reconstituted. Mm. Um, and, but, but then you have people like Rudolf Steiner, who more saw that this, um, you know, the, 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 the impetus in the Western uh, consciousness towards understanding the nature of matter, transforming matter, transforming the earth, you know, that, that's actually part of our, our, our dharma and our spiritual purpose also. Uh, and uh, Steiner, for me, is uh, one of the most fascinating uh, thinkers, uh, you know, modern occult uh, philosophers and so on. And he, he was, um, you know, I think he was born in the 1860s, uh, and um, he um, had sort of a clairvoyance, uh, visionary capacity from a very early age. Uh, he could see into all these other worlds. He could read the Akashic records and so on. But he realized that other people around him didn't possess these gifts. So he actually waited uh, until he was like 40 years old and had completed a doctorate in philosophy uh, before he started to talk about his um, inner investigations, inner explorations. And eventually Steiner claimed that actually the, the purpose of his incarnation on the earth was to bring the knowledge of reincarnation itself back to the West. That knowledge had been lost uh, with the Judeo-Christian monotheisms, and um, you know that we had to sort of um, reaccess that understanding. In fact, he wrote a whole series of books called Karmic Relationships, where he traced different Western individualities back to their series of past lives to kind of show how they gleaned certain uh, abilities, capacities that kind of led to their genius and led to their kind of, uh, you know, creative breakthroughs and so on. They're kind of similar to what Tibetan, Tibetans understand when they have, you know, these lamas, like the Dalai Lama is known to be, you know, a reincarnation of a, the past Dalai Lama. Uh, and he was the reincarnation of the past Dalai Lama and so on. They've actually, they have tests, uh, ways of kind of seeing if the child who could be the new Dalai Lama, you know, recognizes the um, kind of uh, the tools that were used by the previous Dalai Lama, you know, ha has some kind of resonance, uh, you know, so, yeah, so, so uh, Steiner believed that this process of reincarnation, which is recognized in the East, has also been happening in the West, and we just happen to lose the uh, knowledge of it back, uh, way back when, um, and so his, his, his role was to kind of try to reinstate it. So let me see if I get this straight. You're saying that Steiner took the biographies of historical figures and tried to trace a, a, a link, a pathway between successive reincarnations of people a fraction of the seven and a half billion people that are currently on earth and you know the billions more that have been here before us he was able to actually in a in a western scientific uh, modality trace the links between historical figures as if they were the same consciousness reincarnating again and again and again uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, some of the terminology uses not what I would say, but like, I mean, like, like, like who? Okay, who? Well, it's been, it's, I mean, I, I have, you know, it's been a while since I've read through those books, but you take somebody like Karl Marx or Engels or, you know, Beethoven or whatever, you'd be able to show 
you know, Goethe, you know, who, who that person was in, you know, the Middle Ages or the Roman period or so on. And, and, and you know, what, what, what happened to them and why, why they developed certain uh, soul capacities. I mean, that's, you know, what, what are the arguments for um, reincarnation that's um, sometimes used is like, you know, genius, prodigies, like somebody like Mozart, you know, his, uh, you know, ability to compose symphonies at like five years old or something, you know, it, it almost seems beyond uh, the capacity for an individual human uh, to, to have that level of, you know, that monumental genius, unless they were all able, they were accessing gifts, um, you know, that, you know, they developed in, uh, you know, previous, previous cycles of existence. Hmm. You know, Daniel said something really important in that last uh, concept in in uh, some works by Eastern teachers, that same principle applies not just to individuals, but to groups of humanity. It's been said esoterically that the British Empire is uh, an extension of the Roman Empire. It's really reincarnated Rome. Um, in these same uh, sources, they talk about uh, the United States being reincarnated Egypt, interestingly enough. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, especially when you think of all the Egyptian stuff along the Mississippi <laughs> River and, you know, that kind of thing. The the other thing is uh, he made a really important point that shouldn't be gone over too quickly, and that is that the approach to reincarnation, East and West, has lots of different sides to it. Um, there are differences here and there and differences of approach, differences in detail. Um, but the West does have a tradition of this in the Druidic and Celtic uh, tradition. Reincarnation was such a, an important part of their culture that you could borrow goods or money from somebody and agree to pay it back in the next incarnation. And that was. Ah! Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow. So, so this idea of of um, of incarnating into what the Hindus call the three lower worlds: the world of mind, the world of the emotions or the astral level, the world of physicality. That we begin this big cycle in innocence, and we descend downward, deeper into matter, taking that matter unto ourselves, and then as we hit the bottom of the loop and begin our climb home on the evolutionary scale, uh, we take not only that experience and mastery of matter, which we've learned, but we take the quality of that matter with us. And so humanity becomes, in a sense, the agent of planetary transmutation. And the cycle that begins in, pure, in innocence uh, finishes in purity. And as Daniel was saying, um, we're freed from the wheel of rebirth and go on to other uh, levels of existence or according to the vow of the bodhisattva we choose to remain behind until all of humanity is accounted for that's a lot of people <laughs> i think arthur did a calculation one time arthur clark that something like 30 billion people throughout you know the beginning of humanity as far as anthropologists have charted it back several million years have preceded us on this planet that sounds like a large number, but frankly, it's not very large. You know, well, you know, go ahead. You, you know, the, the, one of the questions that always comes up is, well, 
we've got more people alive on the earth than ever before. Where did all those new souls come from? Mm-hmm. And the answer, to, and the answer to that is that in the metaphysical view, that humanity as a field of consciousness, as a one life, is both a one and a many. That at our very core, we have this spark of divinity, this piece of God that makes us part of that uh, that greater life. And um, uh, as we progress in the three lower worlds, we gain experience in matter. But in normal times, um, you don't have as many all jammed into physical dents. The reason why there's more people now on the planet is that, as we've talked about, Richard, that you have this confluence of many different cycles dovetailing into one another. And this is the hot ticket in town. Uh, it's said that between incarnations, you can absorb, you can synthesize, but any real headway must be made while in physical incarnation possessed of a brain. It has to do with this soul-mind-brain connection. And so there's a lot of folks taking advantage of what this cycle has to offer in terms of being in physicality. Hmm. Daniel, I want to go back to Steiner because this sounds to me like a almost dauntless, unfulfillable task. What were his criteria for trying to link historical figures? And if there's a, a musical genius who's a prodigy at five and he's playing pianos and sonatas and all that, that no kid of five should be able to do unless he had a precedence of an archive of a, you know knowledge of how to do this from a previous incarnation, do do people change profession? Do they change interest? Do they change loves and obsessions? And if they do that, how could Steiner possibly connect similarities across, uh, you know, uh, at least written history? It seems almost impossible. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, Steiner's, you know, kind of argue, argue. I mean, by the way, it's like I don't take anything. You know that I'm saying, or that, or that um, what's, what's uh, the woman's name, Georgia, is yes. saying as like you know written in. I mean, it's like for me, it's everything is you know we're 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 on an investigation, we're on an exploration. It's not like I'm saying this is the actual truth. You know, this these are the you know. I mean, um, you know, I, I play with different hypotheses. I mean, um, you know, what I find very interesting for a second is that. Um, you know, un- under scientific materialism, which we've had for the last few centuries as the dominant paradigm, you know, obviously reincarnation, you know, psychic paranormal phenomena, and so on, we're totally disallowed. And, and it's almost like a religion of materialism that you find in people like Richard Dawkins and David Dennett, like, you know, and, and the kind of, you know, the, there's still, you know, many people who kind of like will totally, you know, attack any, any form of paranormal uh, activity or, or, you know, or whatever. Um, but uh, what uh, thinkers like the Swami, um, another interesting one is uh, Robert Lanza, who in biocentrism are pointing out is that, that, you know, if we look at everything that we've learned about the nature of reality from quantum physics over the last century, um, it actually opens uh, potentialities for there being things like uh, reincarnation and subtle bodies and so on. Um, so, for instance, Swami puts out this idea that, um, you know, our, 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 when we're living – you know, we're creating kind of aggregates like thought, uh, you know, feeling uh, and so on, intention and so on. And, you know, these may remain connected as quantum phenomena, 
because we now know that uh, quantum phenomena spread infinitely and its probability waves yet remains connected you know so so you know there's uh, action at a distance there's you know if you if you you know if you if you influence one electron and it's connected to another electron that other electron even if it's like halfway across the galaxy will also you know shift its position or its trajectory and so on so it, it could be possible that you know through through life we're creating these kind of quantum aggregates and um, you know when we haven't fulfilled our goals or our missions or whatever uh, those aggregates seek them to you know find another physical form to uh, continue their 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 kind of uh, impetus and so on so I, I find that very interesting and, and um, yeah we can also talk about the subtle bodies and so on but anyway so you know the the short answer to your question about Steiner is that um, you know according to him he was able to go into a visionary state and read what are called the Akashic records, which are the spiritual imprint of uh, humanity. And uh, you know he was a great initiate of, of our age and had this ability that that very few people have. Uh, you know what's interesting for me is I've done a lot of work with um, you know, psychedelics, particularly uh, ayahuasca, which contains methyltryptamine, uh, DMT is a uh, chemical component uh, in our brains that's also found in many plants. There's actually two forms of DMT, 5-MeO-DMT and NN-DMT. Uh, and um, both of them, when you uh, extract and smoke them, complete, create complete uh, out-of-body experiences where you enter into these sort of hyperdimensional realities uh, where sometimes you have this experience of encountering you know, what Terence McKenna talks about is like a vast ecology of souls or beings and so on. Uh, and uh, through ayahuasca, you could actually have, um, yeah, kind of experiences of connecting with something like the Akashic Record that Steiner talks about, where you see, you know, kind of events from the historical past or the spiritual past or enter into other states of consciousness of, of plants or animals and so on. And so anyway, so Steiner basically argues that he was um, somebody who had this ability from a very young age and there was then for, therefore was able to spend years honing it and mastering it. And one thing he could then do was follow the souls of different human beings back from their past incarnations. Um, and so what he was, what he you know, claims that he was presenting in the series of book karmic relationships is just the um, result of his uh, investigation, uh, which he talked about as a spiritual science. So Edgar, Edgar Casey did, oh. Casey did something similar with some of his readings, interesting Correct. past incarnations. So via yeah, the Akashic exactly. records. Yeah. So Dan, let me exactly. get this straight. Uh, we're we were kind of I'm distantly obviously familiar with the Akashic record. If we think of it as a giant address book, I know that's probably profane. Did Steiner use his direct access through his own consciousness? to this record as a kind of a guide and a set of clues to historical figures? In other words, is it really, is it written down somewhere? So he had a kind of a heads up of who to follow, who to try to investigate, who to connect. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, some people, I think, you know, even Casey actually talked about how it, it was like a, it's like a library or, or as you said, a hall of records, in the uh, in the akasha in the in the, in the spiritual realm, um, and um, yeah, you could actually request um, you know somebody's uh, you know book in the library, and then you would you know be able to look back and see who you know the, who they were in the past and you know even in the future. I mean, you know, and then, then once again we, we go to the discoveries of quantum physics. You know, one thing that um, 
kind of became apparent is that, um, you know, we, we are locked into this, you know, third dimensional realm or fourth dimensional realm. We, we kind of, you know, are moving through time and space uh, in this very limited way. Uh, but the, the discoveries of quantum physics reveal that actually, you know, everything that we're experiencing in a way has, has already happened. There's already a, you know, fifth dimensional space-time continuum uh, where, what, 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 you know, what everything that we experience, past, present, future, have essentially already, you know, happened in a sense, or, or, or are happening simultaneously. I mean, it's paradoxical, the language in a way. So, yeah, this idea that there could be, um, you know, a, uh, you know, karmic record of, of, of a soul, you know, passing through the trajectory of time that's preserved in this higher dimensional state, uh, you know, it's something that, 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 you know, as I said, the quantum physics now kind of allows for. Mm. It, it's very important that, that this, this point that Daniel just made not be gone over too quickly. Um, you know, there's just as much crystallized thought in the esoteric tradition as anything else. And a lot of what's out in the marketplace approaches reincarnation in a linear way. You know, you start out someplace in the distant past as unevolved animal slime and you wind up as the Christ. But we know, we know that, that, um, that time is only relegated to this dense physical and things move differently in out of body experience or in near death experience or in dreams. And so from the, the window that the new physics is opening for us, is something that some of the Chinese said a long time ago, which is all of our incarnations are going on simultaneously. Now, your brain goes on tilt trying to figure that out because that means you've got to rethink how karma works. It doesn't work linearly. And so this is a whole new area of exploration in terms of the metaphysical horizon. You mentioned a magic word, and we're coming up to the top of the hour, so I'm going to hold... All kinds of questions I have for both you guys until we get to the top of the hour. Uh, my, my guests this morning are um, uh, Georgia Lambert and Daniel Pinchbeck. Uh, Georgia's kind of sitting into an experiment that I'm running here. She's kind of a co-host this morning. And we're talking about consciousness, but consciousness beyond three dimensions. And I think we need to separate the two, and that's where some of my uh, personal encounters with uh, – uh, folks that are no longer here in the physical may come to the fore later in the program. But is it automatic that just because consciousness is eternal, that reincarnation in three dimensions is mandated or voluntary or selective or optional or or what? We have more questions in a little while. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 point archives prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, September 4th. You know, it's been exactly within a couple, three hours of uh, two and a half years since Robin died. And my guest this morning, uh, I've talked with Georgia extensively. I haven't talked with Daniel, but Daniel, have you had, and I've had this, so I know what it feels like, and I can't prove it. The most frustrating thing is to be a scientist, have absolute personal evidence that someone you care for very much is still somewhere out there, still in sometimes very arcane and dramatically symbolic ways communicating, but you can't have an everyday conversation. You can't, you know, for people who skeptics, people who will say, oh, come on, you're crazy. You can't nail it down. How can one approach something so amorphous from a scientific perspective, difficult with this entire subject. Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I guess what I'm suggesting is, is the first thing is that you need to have a, um, a hypothesis, you know, that, that is within science, uh, even, if it, even if it's against, uh, you know, different than the current scientific hypothesis. So that's why I think um, Swami's um, perspective that we need to shift from 
scientific materialism to a new paradigm that he calls monistic idealism, which interestingly enough is also the, the name that Rudolf Steiner uh, used um, a century, over a century ago. Um, I think that's the starting point. Like we, we can't, you know, our, our, our current paradigm has locked us into dualistic thinking. Um, and um, yeah, so we have to kind of like um, deconstruct that. Um, so yeah, so that, 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 you know, and, and then, you know, it's like anything, I mean, there's different, I mean, you know, on some level, you know, we don't even know, like, you know, how, how do you know for sure that anybody besides you possesses, you know, a subject of consciousness, right? <laughs> like, for, 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 no, I mean, for all you know, you know, I'm a robot, you know, that, that, that's, uh, you're, you're, you know, that's been created to, you know, uh, you know what I mean? Everybody around you might actually just be a robot and you might be the only subjective consciousness. So, but we, but we feel that we know that we establish that for ourselves through, you know, deductive reasoning, you know, inference and so on. And so, you know, the, the same, the same type of um, reasoning uh, would also be the type of reasoning and, and, the, and the sort of method of um, kind of investigation inquiry that we would use uh, in this case, you know, so, um, you know, when it comes to understanding the possibility of reincarnation, afterlife uh, experience, and so on. So then we have to review the, you know, the various levels of evidence, um, you know, which there are many, many interesting types. Uh, even the uh, phenomenon where, um, you know, the, the, the dead make phone calls and, and, and um, you know, communicate with the living. You know, somebody will pick up a phone, a phone and have a, have a call with, uh, you know, it can be, you know with, with somebody who's deceased. I mean, that's, there's a name for that, uh, which I can look up if you want. But yeah, so there's, there's different, you know, apparitions of the dead, uh, mediumship, you know, mediums who, you know, actually are able to channel, you know, both the personalities and also specific information from people who've passed and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a very, there's a good, good three volume uh, book uh, selection called, uh, well, what is, I believe, uh, Science in the Afterlife. Uh, you know, science and psychic phenomena, and science of near-death experiences by Chris Carter, and he he very carefully goes over all the skeptical arguments and uh, wait, provides wait, wait. like Cr- calling counter arguments. Chris Carter, the Chris Carter, yeah, X Files, Chris uh, Carter. Uh, I don't know if it's X Files, Chris Carter. I don't think so, actually. Hmm. Um, Chris Carter has written the three volumes. Science and psychic phenomena, uh, science in the afterlife, science in the near-death experience. Um, no, I don't think it's the same guy. I mean, he but he did a great, great job with these books. And uh, in the first one, which is science and psychic phenomena, he goes through all of the um, by uh, skeptics uh, and kind of you know rebuts them, refutes them one after the other. So yeah, so in, in the same way that you know you can never say for certain that I that anybody around you has consciousness except yourself. Uh, but you have to use deductive and inductive reasoning and inference to, to you know, reach that conclusion uh, in the same way we can use various forms of reasoning to establish, um, you know, the, the possibility or the likelihood or even the certainty, uh, relatively, of uh, there being consciousness uh, outside of the body and after death. Mm. You know, in, in uh, the metaphysical uh, tradition, there have been... East and West, two main paths of approach to this greater consciousness or enlightenment. One is called the heart path and one is called the head path. The heart path is the mystic path, which produces the saint, 
this is the path where an individual spontaneously ha or or via meditation per perhaps or prayer has these aha eureka moments where the consciousness just expands and uh, it's an absolute fact for that individual the occult path or the path of the head uh, produces the sage and this is a path that's slower but it's a path that is repeatable the saint cannot tell someone else how to do what they did uh, the occultist produces a methodology which can be taught to others and today both of these paths are being merged you know Richard you asked about how can we scientifically prove this you know it's really interesting it, the whole new area of ghost hunting with all of its hype and its stuff mm. and its stupidness but one thing that's coming out of it is the technology they've got infrared cameras and ultraviolet cameras and and uh, machines that can pick up sound that human hearing can't hear and you know plot electromagnetic fields and so on and so forth so in the future um, as we approach the phenomena of dying or uh, a person that is having uh, conversations let's say with those on the other side the technology will eventually get to the place where it'll see that and it will be proven hmm you know one of the big uh, controversial political points right now of course is this new uh, state of Texas abortion law which allows zero you know uh, interference with uh, a woman conceiving a child regardless <laughs> of rape or incest and there's all kinds of other attributes of the law that are pretty pretty horrible but the backdrop for all of this is the idea that when a woman has an abortion you are killing a consciousness that will never be here again it's murder 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 if you look at it from the perspective of reincarnation I mean you mentioned a moment ago that we've got about seven and a half billion people on the planet right now but you know that's a that's a lot more than you know have lived lived on earth previously before so if 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 souls are replacing each other in a sequence and we have more bodies now than we had before where did all the extra souls come from and it almost seems to me that the that the idea of you know not permitting abortion under any circumstance up to and including in the texas law the life of the mother in other words the choice there under the law is if the mother dies giving birth so be it you know that birth is more important than the mother's death etc cetera, etc cetera. but looked at from a reincarnative model if at first you don't succeed try try again in other words are there a lot more people waiting in the wings looking for appropriate three-dimensional bodies to inhabit than we have imagined in our philosophy Horatio Daniel um, you want to you want to take that one <laughs> yeah I mean I don't know I mean it just feels like um, you know um, I mean, you know, the, the, what, what this, this, you know, obviously, from my perspective, the rollback of, of abortion rights is a horrible thing. 
Um, you know, we really don't need, um, you know, more, uh, you know, kind of um, under-resourced uh, children uh, coming into a world. And, and, you know, it really feels that this is about a historical uh, repression of uh, the feminine, you know, of women, of women's rights, of women's equality, this kind of dominator control paradigm of, of this patriarchal, uh, you know, Christian society. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's very regressive and, um, you know, terrible, really. Uh, in terms of reincarnation, you know, we don't, you know, who can say how it operates? I mean, you know, there may be many, you know, failed worlds in the universe where there are the souls who got to a certain point who are, you know, wanting to get back in the game. You know, there may also be in, you know, some some animals, you know, get you know, I mean we're we're obviously we're wiping out the animal populations of the earth. So, you know, some of the some of the souls you know coming through could be, you know, coming from the animal kingdom. But this is you know, this is just conjecture. I mean, you know, just hypothesis. I mean um, you know, I, I, what, what I really try to do in my work um, is make a real, you know, careful distinction between, um, yeah, kind of like uh, different different levels of hypothesis, conjecture, and then also things that one's had direct experience of, which one can feel a little bit more confident about, in a way. You know, Richard, the the subject that that you brought up, um, I have to. Um, give you a pattern because I know you like looking at patterns. <laughs> isn't it isn't it interesting that in the same time frame where this a, a repressive law has been passed in Texas uh, Oh the taking, most draconian taking, of, of all. Taking choice away from, from women and, and again from the metaphysical point of view uh, the soul is immortal. You're, you're just denying uh, the 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 soul to come through you at that time but but the pattern that that i found interesting was that at the same time that this was going on in texas you have this hurricane ida now metaphysically um in the subtle body you have an uh, an electrical current that um rides along the, the, the cerebrospinal fluid and the spinal column and cord. And then you have, uh, as the Hindus call it, Ida and Pingala, these two currents that, like the snakes in the caduceus, lie on either side of the spine. And this, this hurricane went from New Orleans, which is the sacral chakra of the nation, up to the throat center, which is New York. Hmm. And there's a there's a polarity between the the sacral and throat. They're Obviously, both I have centers. to ask: How do we know that? Who gave those how we, lo, how, those locations those, those identities? In other words, what do you mean by sacral and throat and all that? Well, this is this is part of metaphysical tradition that all life forms have uh, an electrical um, supportive structure. Uh, science is getting into this studying about things like acupuncture and Carilion photography and a nation does too and some of it is natural you know the natural powerpoints or ley lines of the earth and some of it is man-made so um, this is just uh, um, in, in terms of the centers of the nation this is this is something that uh, is been in metaphysical tradition for some time Hmm. Yeah, Sean David Morton used to talk about Hollywood as, I think, the throat chakra. But again, 
who, of who, California. Of, yeah, but who, who – well, of, of the country. But who made these who, – who put this down in some codified book? Who decided? It, who gave it names? It, it, it's not in any one particular source. Okay. So New Orleans, in that sense, symbolically, is? Is the sacral center, which is the doorway into incarnation. It's procreativity. The throat center, which is its, its polarity, is conscious creativity. For instance, musicians, painters, uh, creative thinkers. Uh, the, the, well, throat the to throat, me says the, communication. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So it's just very interesting that you have this pattern of this hurricane named Ida, which is the feminine current along the spine, running a path from the sacral center where physical uh, coming into this world happens to New York. And it's a destructive uh, path right at the same time that the feminine is being suppressed. Simultaneous with this draconian Texas law. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now that is synchronistically intriguing. Daniel, what do you think? Um, I don't really have a thought about that. I don't. I don't know much about what she's talking about the sacrals and so on. Okay. Um, let me let me go on to another aspect of this. If we're trying to make it scientific, um, what kind of scientific experiment? Let's go back to your favorite physicist. First of all, please spell his name because if I hadn't seen it. I would have thought you were saying Swami. His name actually is Guest Swami, I believe. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know about my favorite physicist, but uh, Amit Swami, A-M-I-T, uh, then G-O-S-W-A-M-I. No, too, too, fast, uh, too, fast, number, too fast, too fast, too fast. Slower, slower. G, G, G-O-S-W-A-M-I. Gaswami. And, uh, okay. He goes, go, go, Swami. So he's written books, uh, what is called Physics of the Soul. Uh, and another one is called the self-aware universe. Hmm. Well, in the little note you sent me uh, advertising your seminar, you said he was your favorite physicist. So I'm only quoting you. Well, yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, uh, I have a little intellectual crush on him right now because I think he's um, he's um, put stuff together in a very uh, useful way that allows the um, you know kind of the, the, the mystical and the scientific uh, mind to kind of come together in a way. So how does he approach this as a physicist? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's, he's, I think he wrote a manual about quantum mechanics. But as I said, basically, um, you know, looking at the various uh, properties of quantum physics that were so astonishing to, to their discoverers in the 20th century, such as um, non-locality, action at a distance, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, electrons and what can remain uh, you know, connected even over, over you know huge different differences, but with with an immediacy of connection. I mean, the, the point of it is that um, you know the the fact that they're immediately connected uh, means that there's no message being transmitted, so the connection is actually um, you know has to be direct on, on this transcendent domain. So that that you know kind of opens well, it, up oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. It has it has to be higher dimensional. Not limited by 3D, yeah. 3D space-time and physical laws that we are understanding. Exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that, that, that you know, kind of, um, you know, and, and then also, you know, like the delayed choice experiment, um, the discovery that, um, um, yes, yeah, some, somehow actually it's the conscious participant that, um, you know, sort of like an almost like brings – 
the world into, into manifestation, you know, from, from, from the kind of ocean of probabilities and possibilities. What do you uh, mean, something that, what, what do you mean by delayed choice experiment? Uh, delayed choice experiment. Well, well, first there was the double slit experiment where they were looking at uh, the nature of light and they were firing photons through these two double slits and they discovered that, um, I, I still find this stuff kind of hard to, to express properly. They, st- they found that um, depending on how they, how they conducted the experiment, the, the photons either behaved as waves or as particles. Uh, one by, if they shot them one by one, they behaved as particles. Uh, if they shot a beam of them, then they spread in interference patterns like waves. So this was one of the first experiments that made it clear that, um, that, that, the, that the smallest level of quanta you know, the, 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 the matter is neither wave or particle. So, you know, wave call uh, or, or it's just something, um, yeah, or, or it's really just probability. It's not, you know, it's, it's more that these particles don't actually exist in the same way we think of matter existing. It's more like in, in one of the phrases of the physicists, they, they showed the events tendencies to exist, uh, their probability <laughs> waves. Uh, so the, uh, the delayed choice experiment added on to the, um, Sort of experiment with the photons, you know, kind of extra mirrors, and kind of um, they, they created a, a mechanism by which the, uh, the, the 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 choice of whether to measure the uh, photons as a wave or a particle was done retroactively. And they found that you know if if the choice was made to measure it as a particle, it was a particle. If they, the choice was made you know to measure it as a, as a wave, it appeared as a wave. So th- th- this suggested kind of a, a retro causality. Um, so yeah, so, so that somehow, uh, you know, this led to the Schrodinger's cat, uh, thought, thought paradigm. You probably need to describe thought. what Schrodinger's cat is. Uh, yes, that's, you know, the, I mean, um, it was, you know, kind of a humorous exper- uh, kind of thought experiment. The idea is that, um, if you had a, a cat, you know, totally in a kind of, um, electromagnetically sealed box. And there was um, kind of, uh, you know, some kind of radiation that was pulsating randomly. So there's a 50-50 chance that um, when you open the box, the cat would either be dead because this poison had been released or alive. Uh, you would actually have to say the cat, before you opened the box, was uh, both dead and alive. Um, it, it was, uh, it was a, you know, still, still existing as potentiality. Um, and Einstein thought that was a joke, but, but actually it turns out more and more, that's the way reality works. That the, 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 the conscious uh, participation uh, of the scientist or of the observer actually is what collapses the uh, probability wave into a definite outcome. So, so, so you know, and, and this leads to you know just larger and larger questions about the nature of reality. That somehow um, you know it, it really is um, a universe of consciousness. You know, where, where consciousness is, is the fundamental reality. And, um, you know, the universe in some sense comes into existence when a uh, participant uh, makes, makes a, a, an observation. So anyway, so all of this type of, you know, this whole new way of looking at the universe that, that's opened up by quantum physics then leads us to, as I said before, be able to think differently about uh, the spirit, the self, you know, the other, other, other levels of, of consciousness that might exist, you know, outside of, uh, you know, the physical body. Uh, and particularly as we know that, you know, energy, you know, doesn't uh, go away, you know, so if we can think of, you know, consciousness as a form of energy, then, um, yeah, as, as you said before, it would have to be eternal in some sense. Mm. Uh, and it, and in, those, in those experiments, if, if I remember correctly, 
human observation not only uh, influences the behavior of subatomic particles, but they can, be, they can influence the behavior of those particles in the past. Exactly. That's what I was saying. That's the, that's the delayed choice experiment. Exactly. I yeah. guess and, I'm, and, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very unclear in how you set up an experiment where you look in the future and you decide what you want it to do. Because to set it up, you have to decide you want to set it up. You can't. In other words, how, how did that work technically, Daniel? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't pretend to be a, a scientist, but, um, you know, we can, we can look up kind of the description of how that happened. I mean, um, um, so, yeah, they, it, it's, it, you know, people can just look it up online, too, and they, they can read it for themselves in, in Wikipedia or so on. But, um, uh, you know, they, they, the experiment works in such a way that the light beam was split so that it can go in two directions uh, and across the last moment. And at the very last moment, uh, the experimenter could ins insert an extra mirror, uh, and that would that would determine whether or not to measure the wave aspect uh, or not. Um, and they've already, so in a sense, the light had already traveled past the point of the split. Uh, if you think of them as ordinary Newtonian objects. So when you inserted the mirror at that point, it still always revealed the wave aspect, and not inserting the mirror showed the particle aspect. Uh, so, you know, it seemed as if each quantum of light was simultaneously, you know, was 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 responding to the delayed choice instantly and retroactively. So, does Goswami talk about laboratory experiments in his book, or does he launch into the realm of of you know, interviewing people, consciousness here and now, and trying to set up, uh, you know, come some kind of experimental protocol? Well, I mean, he talks about experiments such as this one. But, but 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 the point is that um, you know I mean he and he's written you know he wrote a manual on quantum mechanics and so on so he's very well versed in it but he also comes from an Indian background so so you know so so essentially what he ends up looking at is how you know and it's very similar to what Friedrich uh, Kapler did in the Tao of Physics you know lo looking at the you know the, the sort of intrinsic relationship of what quantum physics has discovered over the last century and what Eastern uh, mysticism and metaphysics has spoken about for thousands of years. And essentially what the, uh, the quantum physics experiments have ended up doing is proving what these uh, Eastern, Eastern mystics have been saying about the ultimate nature of reality, uh, you know, since, you know, since the you know, time of the Rig Veda, the you know, ancient Vedic scriptures and so on. Uh, and among, the, among those ideas is the idea that, you know, ultimately, you know, we, we are all expressions of this indivisible consciousness uh, the I am that. When you were in Gabon and you said the shaman, I believe that's the appropriate term, said that your mother was standing somewhere in your vicinity, hovering over you, that kind no, of thing? No, no, sorry. Sorry, it was my mother's mother. Your mother's uh, so That was more specific. Your, that, that was also fascinating to me because he knew nothing about my past. Uh, well, talk about my, that. Talk know, about my, the whole experience because – you know, people listening are into the experience. You know, the laboratory stuff is one thing, but personal experience by an authentic, you know, reporter, witness, et cetera, is very compelling. I mean, that's a, our whole legal system is based on witness testimony. So what happened? How did you how did you wind up get going there? And how did he wind up talking about your grandmother? Um well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I went there on assignment from a, from a magazine to go through this uh, 
I mean, Iboga is, um, you know, an incredible substance that's being studied, especially for its anti-addictive properties. Uh, it's the longest acting psychedelic. It like, like, puts you on like a 20, 25 hour trip. Um, when I took it, I went through a lot of like early childhood uh, memories and suppressed material and so on. And I was shown little movies of, of myself and different phases of my life and kind of given a sense of how, you know, my environment had constructed me uh, as, a, as an individual um, in both good and bad ways. Uh, but it was actually during a second ceremony. There was one, uh, one of the, 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 the Gaban, the Pweedy name uh, for okay, well, Daniel, we're, we're, we're at the uh, bottom of the hour. Hold it right there because this is too important to skip over quickly. We've got the time. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are Daniel Pinchbeck, who is a well-known author in the field of consciousness. He's written several books. The last one with the most intriguing title, Do Plants Dream? I mean, this is uh, uh, Baker's work with uh, brine shrimp and plants and stimuli and all that. I mean, amazing. Anyway, uh, Georgia Lambert is my co-host this morning, who has a bit more background in this than I do. Gosh, yes. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, September 4th, 2021. Can you believe that it's just before the fall equinox of 2021? A year, along with 2020, which will live, well, it certainly is something we do not want to reincarnate. I can guarantee you that. Uh, My guests this morning are Daniel Pinchbeck, who is a well-known author in the field of consciousness study. He's written several books. Uh, the last one uh, is all about uh, do plants dream? I just find that such a fascinating subject. Uh, when plants dream, I'm sorry. Ayahuasca, Amazonian shamanism, 
and the global psychedelic renaissance. Sandy, you were in the middle of telling us about your experience in Gabon. Yeah, and by the way, I don't really, you know, it's like I don't mean to over-prioritize this one experience. I mean, it's just something that for me was very, um, you know, you know, impressive, I guess, in a sense. But I mean, um, I was working with this plant medicine in Africa, and um, I just arrived there. You know, I didn't know anybody there, and... During one of the ceremonies, one of the shamans from from this uh, community called Tabwini uh, said that he could see the spirit of my mother's mother uh, hovering over me, and he told me that she had died very recently, that she still loved me very much, and that she was in a way protecting me, but also stopping me from seeing different parts of the spiritual world that I was hoping to see. Uh, wait, 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 hang on, hang on. She was stopping you from seeing parts of things you wanted to see? Why? Uh, well, I mean, okay, but I mean, she was being overprotective, I guess. Um, you know, and she was very overprotective, actually, in life. But, the, but was so, the first thing that was just so astonishing about it is that she was the only grandparent that I'd actually known, uh, and that she had died, uh, you know, within a year uh, of, that, of that visit. And I hadn't told anybody, nobody there knew about my grandmother, my mother's mother, that, that she had died recently. So, you know, it was just one of the first kind of um, really extraordinary kind of uh, indications that I received that, uh, you know, shamans, visionaries are, are able to perceive, you know, in this kind of transpersonal realm and actually bring back uh, accurate information. Hmm. What other specifics did he give you that made you feel that he really was in contact or seeing your uh, grandmother? He didn't give me any other specifics. That, that was actually enough for me uh, in that circumstance. Hmm. Okay. Um, Georgia, please help here. Because to me... You, you know, I, I had something similar. Uh, when, when I was first married, um, my maid of honor uh, had some visual phenomena. And she said to me that there were two older ladies that were there with me, of course, that nobody else could see. Now, she didn't know that my dad's mother had died when he was two, and he was raised by two maiden aunts who had since passed on. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. And then when the slides of the wedding uh, were uh, um, uh, (laughs) into full picture, there were two ghostly figures, par- partial figures, in the frame. Oh my gosh! Well, that's pretty. Intriguing. So there, so there are people that you know can can see beyond the veil, as they used to say. Hmm. My personal experience, and obviously I've been very focused. You know, two and a half years is like two and a half days. You know, where is Robin? In the beginning, I had certain unmistakable communications. There were even physical objects. The last one I'm going to talk about in a little while, the last one almost seemed to be a kind of a ironic, uh, she had a very, you know, quirky sense of humor. And as I look back now, I'm thinking, I wonder if that manifestation of a physical object, which has a kind of of an implication associated with it, whether it was a kind of a double entendre, it was a, it was a metaphor for 
her reincarnate. Well, l- l- let me tell you what I'm talking about. Uh, before Robin died, we had moved into this house and we had a lot of stuff to move. And because of her uh, health condition, she was unable to do all the unpacking. And I remember uh, maybe two or three months before she died, asking her where the ivory handled egg beater that we'd had in another house, you know, had been placed. And she was in no condition to go and root around in boxes and all that. And she just said, well, keep looking. And I did, and I could never find it and all that. Well, Robin died in March of uh, 2019, March 3rd. And several months later, I was thinking to myself, you know, I really want to make Swedish pancakes. And I can't do it because I don't have an egg beater. And I thought to myself, okay, you know, I'm going to have to break down. I'm going to have to, you know, buy another one. So I was making out a shopping list uh, that evening and I put it on the list. And I remember going to the kitchen and I was looking for something else. And I opened the drawer where the utensils are and there, right on top among all the other black handled and black plastic utensils, was this ivory-handled white egg beater that we I hadn't seen in, in like two or three years. Right on top, there it was. And I know there is no physical way she could have gone looking, could have found it, would not have told me if she had found it, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at it, and the most astonishing, weird thought came into my mind apropos of her quirky sense of humor, A, you know how an egg beater works, right? You turn the handle and these two multi-bladed things at the bottom spin in opposite directions. Well, there are crop circles in England which have depicted this kind of mechanical counter-rotating geometry of a vortex which opens the gate between dimensions and is part of what I call and the Russians call the torsion field. And I've been doing experiments for the Akatron uh, for many years. And, you know, I took Robin all over the world. We measured all kinds of sacred sites to see the anomalous field amplified by these astonishing pyramids in Central America or stone circles like Stonehenge in Britain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the crop circle showing these counter vortices To me, I instantly thought to myself, oh, my gosh, counter-rotating fields. And then the next thought was egg beater, eggs, sperm, eggs, reincarnation. Is this her message that she's coming back as rapidly as possible? Ladies, gentlemen, thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's always obviously, I mean, that's, you know, it's a very lovely story, and to me that is kind of, um, from what I've seen, kind of, you know, the kind of delicate, almost like humorous, um, A, that the spirit world sometimes communicates with us. Um, well, it was so, so in yeah, keeping and, with Robin. It was so Robin at a higher yeah, level. I mean, in fact, was, one of the people on the website that wrote a beautiful testimonial said to me, you know, uh, months before, just after she died, uh, you know, well, now, Richard, she's going to know about, you know, the physics, the torsion field, and she will communicate. And months later, 
this physical art. I've still got it. Every day or every couple of days, I open the drawer and I check because what Robin could giveth, Robin could taketh away. I think something has changed. I noticed there was a period where communication seemed as direct as one can imagine from a higher level realm, including a photograph that she manifested in our bedroom six days after she had died on the very anniversary of my almost dying in Miami and her bringing me back to life or keeping me alive because of her health background and hospitals and all that huge traumatic experience. And it was unmistakable. In fact, this, this photograph was a Carillion photograph where the aura around her was the significator of her as a healer. So the correlation of multiple levels of synchronicity of communication make it pretty, you know, it's like who else could have done that? Um, But that level of communication has morphed in much more extraordinary and exotic directions. And I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. Daniel, if you've ever had that kind of, you know, besides Gabon, that one-on-one experience where it was like, go ahead. Yeah, I've had I've had different things, but I mean, I guess I was thinking, um, you know, Colin Wilson wrote a book called Afterlife, and in the book he talked about um, there's kind of this perplexing mandate where uh, the evidence for life after death shall always be strong enough to reassure the converted, but never conclusive enough to have the slightest influence on the unbelievers. Um, I think that's quite interesting. So it's like, yeah, I mean, uh, subjectively we have these very convincing experiences that are so resonant, but then when we step back more into like an objective or scientific framework, it still remains very, very hard to, you know, kind of like demonstrate that, you know, in an objective way. Um, but I also wanted to mention one of the figures that we're going to be exploring in my uh, seminar um, that starts tomorrow is this guy, Frederick Myers, who was one of the founders of the Society for Psychic Research uh, in the late 19th century, I think he died in 1901, but he spent uh, like you know years and years working on kind of this magnum opus uh, on the uh, called the survival of human personality after bodily death, and he looked at it you know on many levels, very philosophically with a lot of evidence. Absolutely brilliant book. He was a big influence on William James. They were close friends, and um, then he was stricken with an illness and he was going to pass away, so he made a bargain with his friends and he was like, well, if I die. I'm going to try to communicate with you from, you know, beyond the veil. And they kind of set up some of the parameters of how he would send a message and so on. And lo and behold, he did kind of send this message. And then through different mediums for years, he was communicating. I mean, there's apparently his friends in London would meet with this medium and um, the medium was not a very philosophical person, but when sort of Myers kind of entered her body, she would speak for hours exactly like Myers did and with the same philosophical interest and so on, and would also kind of like talk a lot about what, uh, you know, the after-death experience of Frederick Myers was like, uh, how he was kind of living in this world. He talked about the kind of a metaphysical world with a body that was similar to the body he had during life, but, but sort of less substantive, more volatile. And, um, yeah, it's just quite fascinating, um, all of the, the details. And he talks about also how hard it is to convey a message from that kind of dimension to this dimension, that it's like trying to, like, speak through, like, thick glass or something. Everything is kind of muffled and, and distorted in some way. 
So, um, yeah, but they're just, you know, um, you know, once we open to this being a, a legitimate dimension of human experience, um, you know, it, it, it could become a very fascinating uh, subject of exploration for humanity in the future. One of, and there, and there's, and, and there's a, a pretty good history of, of people that have passed over producing physical phenomena. Usually it's not quite as dramatic as the egg beater. Um, <laughs> often it comes more uh, via ascent. You know, especially in the East, there's all kinds of... Oh, that's happened too. Anic- I've, I've walked in a room and I've smelled her perfume. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's more subtle physically than, you know, manifesting or moving around physical objects. Um, So you see a lot more um, stories about the more subtle type of phenomena. But there are, you know, stories that do talk about moving physical things around. And I think that that, and the reasons for this, we don't have the time to go into. Sure we do. Go ahead. Uh, no, we no, we don't. No, we don't. It would take months. <laughs> but but um, uh, the, I think that there is a really good reason why the production of physical phenomena like that is more likely shortly after transition. It gets harder and harder um, as the fields move away from one another. Perhaps. See, this is part of what I've been trying to put together, guys. The physics consistent with the hyperdimensional torsion field model, you know, and and, and I've, I've kind of likened her early communication, which was very brief, very compact, very, very symbolic. It's almost like trying to pack as much information into one symbol as possible. It's almost like, and I, this is not the right analogy, but I'll use it anyway. It's almost like being the recipient of a hostage video. It was almost like there were constraints on what she can say or do, and that passed, and then there's been nothing direct or overt. It's, it's become very oblique, but in ways that are unmistakable that we're dealing with some kind of higher-level consciousness, but it's just not Robin directly the way Robin and I would, would communicate. It seems like either there is an inhibition going back to Colin Wilson, or the physics itself is such a mismatch that there are only windows, which would be consistent with our other laboratory work. Richard, I mean, yeah, another possibility is, you know, I mean, the soul, according to like Steiner and other people, and once again, you know, I don't know how this really works, but, you know, the soul is also undergoing some evolutionary process you know, towards its next reincarnation or its next state of being in the afterlife. So first there's a very close attachment to the people and the things, you know, of, of the previous life. But over time, those become looser and the, and the focus becomes more on its, you know, evolutionary journey towards its next state of being. You know. Yeah, exactly, Daniel. And, and again, the metaphysical model is that death isn't just the dropping of the physical body. That's just the beginning of the process. Uh, we are multi-layered beings uh, with different levels of matter. And so the death process is, sh- uh, is shedding those layers one by one, uh, just dropping the physical body. Everything else is still intact. And so it's pretty yeah. easy to manipulate I mean, things um, physically. 
you know, there's very obviously interesting evidence from um, a number of, you know, kind of, um, you know, Tibet Buddhist monks, particularly Tibetans, but some right. Thai monks also, who, you know, had been long-term meditators uh, and had, you know, attained a very high degree of, um, you know, a, you know, kind of a high level of attainment in their practice, who after they pass away, their bodies don't decay uh, for a number of weeks or even a few months, or their bodies actually shrink uh, and ultimately become the size of a small box. And, um, you know, there are photos, documentation of, of this and so on. Um, you know, TV, New Zealand television did, did one, a special on one of his, you know, monks who his body didn't decay for months after death or, you know, six weeks. And, you know, according to the, uh, you know, the Buddhists, they're, they're, the, these monks are actually uh, maintaining themselves in a subtle consciousness state. So even though physically they, they appear to be dead and their metabolism has ceased, they're able to somehow vitalize their body or at least you know, keep it from putrefaction and decay by maintaining in, in this subtle consciousness state. So that also, I think, is tremendously Well, all evidence. they would have to or, do, given that by bacteria are frequency-based organisms, and if you change the frequency of the torsion field, you basically make them sterile. How do we find this out? Because remember the French guy who found all the dead cats in the Great Pyramid, but they had not putrefied, they had, had not disintegrated, they were mummified instead, which indicates that the physics of the pyramid, which we've measured, we know these pyramids accumulate, you know, amplify the torsion field. If, it's, if, it, if there's a commonality in this field, then you can certainly see how putrefaction, which depends on bacteria, could be suppressed as a quote miracle the shrinkage part um is this part of your seminar with photographs and all that yeah there are some photographs i mean um i found them at least on a few websites but i, I don't know how you know accurately sourced they are but they're very evocative for sure there's the the famous uh um incident with yogananda who was uh, a hindu sage that that came to the West, bringing a certain types of yoga to the West for the first time. And he based out of um, his, his first base was here in Southern California. Uh, wasn't, he, was, wasn't he in Santa Barbara? Uh, well, yes, there, there's a facility in Santa Barbara and also at Oceanside. Um, ah. Lake Shrine and Oceanside. But uh, when it was time for him to pass, uh, boy, this is the way everybody should pass. He, he called all of his uh, chilas and devotees into the room and said, he was sitting there in lotus posture, and he said, I'm, I'm leaving. And he went into a meditation and left. Wow. And his body did not putrefy. Wow. Well, the feel. Because yeah. above a certain frequency, bacteria, it's like they, they don't like it. You know, I've, I've been doing experiments with my mice and a large Russian-style pyramid. And one of the things that I did to see if there was, you know, a difference in terms of mouse consciousness, I would put candy corn on the base of the pyramid, and I would put candy corn outside. And my expectation in terms of the model was that the mice would avoid the higher frequency amplification of the pyramid, and they would nibble the the candy corn outside and they would leave the candy corn in the pyramid which is a large open frame you can actually get these online 
uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Charlie in North Carolina, builds them. Anyway, um, I've been doing a lot of experiments with the pyramid. Well, what I actually found was for the first few weeks, the model was fulfilled. The candy corn outside was eaten. The candy corn inside was left alone. And then, Dan and Georgia, something really weird began to happen. The mice began to rearrange the candy corn in the pyramid in the form of equilateral triangles and hiding one piece behind the wooden chair leg that I'd put in there because you can't have metal in these experiments. And then they began to accumulate what I called a temple of candy corn on the other side of the house in the library, right above where I had a uh, live trap where I would, you know, have an open aluminum box where the mice would go in, they, the sides would fall down, I would take them far away and let them go. Well, they built a little temple of candy corn, which was a very resonant, symbolic uh, communication thing between me and Robin uh, and for many, many years. And they literally built this temple of candy corn, a whole collection inside a plastic wrapper right above where the live trap was positioned while they were doing geometry on the base of the pyramid in equilateral triangles and other geometric forms, which are indicators of the physics. And so the guy who wrote on the website that Robin knew now much more about the physics than when she was alive, it sounds absolutely stark raving mad, but I think she was using the consciousness of the mice to send physical information that I was on the right track in terms of the physics and where we're all trying to go. And I can't prove it, a, a speck of that. No physical proof that anybody, as you said a moment ago, Daniel, will believe. It's only for people who already understand this is a different reality. Yeah, and, and that's why I'm, I'm thinking that, um, you know, this approach of people like uh, Goswami or Robert Lanza are, are really amazing for building a bridge um, that, you know, because w- without some type of explanatory grid uh, within a scientific framework, uh, we'll just be stuck, um, you know, endlessly in, in, in um, these extraordinary subjective experiences that people have, but there being no pathway to those being uh, accepted as, as uh, valid. Hmm. Another example of, of consciousness affecting physical matter, you have um, the scientist Luther Burbank, who worked with plants, uh, you know, out here in Southern California, Burbank is named for him. He was a disciple of Yogananda. And in his writings, he talks about developing the spineless cactus over time by just radiating love to the cactus and telling it it didn't need its protections. Hmm. I'm trying to think of that scientist. I was Baxter, his name, Daniel, did the consciousness experiments with plants. Cleve Baxter. Clive, Clive, Clive Baxter. Cleve or Clive? Yeah, um, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but Baxter was his last name, yeah. Or, no, Peter Tompkins, too. No, P- Peter Tompkins was yeah, a Peter reporter. Tompkins, yeah. He actually wrote the book, yeah. but it was Baxter who he was writing the book about, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't remember exactly, to be honest, but what's it up? Well, Robin loved to grow plants. 
And some of them, two and a half years, I'm not a plant person, some of them have survived and some of them have not. And the other day, after two, almost two and a half years, she had a pepper, a favorite pepper plant uh, growing in the window. And the mice ate every single pepper and leaf. And it was sitting there just like two bare stalks. I was horrified. I was appalled. And now it's putting out little new leaves, kind of like a symbolic reincarnative, you know, memory jog, like this is not permanent. This can happen, that kind of thing. And again, I'm I'm projecting like crazy, but that seems to be the level of communication with this other side. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. I mean, this is why I really see it as a science of the future. You know, like, um, um, and this is where somebody like Steiner talked about uh, spiritual science. Um, you know, it's like you know, bringing together observation, uh, subjective experience, intuition. Uh, whatever evidence we can muster, uh, you know, it could really provide. I mean, another thing would be, um, you know, okay, so let's say these monks are, uh, they spend 60 years to bring themselves into the state of consciousness so that when they die, they don't putrefy, or Yogananda is another example, or or they attain the rainbow body. Well, you know, could we use, you know, kind of technologies uh, to accelerate um, our evolution of consciousness so that more and more people could have those types of, experiences of becoming that kind of unified field of consciousness. I mean, um, could you use like brainwave entrainment? Could you use psychedelics combined with uh, sonic frequencies, uh, gongs? uh, You know, I feel there's like a whole, um, I mean, an interesting book is by this guy, Tom Roberts, called The Psychedelic Future of the Mind. And he argued that we could have like a future science of exploring kind of these like infinite uh, potentialities in different mind-body states, uh, different states of consciousness that actually have different uh, ways of knowing, different access to information. Uh, so, yeah, so that's something that I think is, is you know, I hope we accelerate, uh, you know, in the near future. I'd love to say like an institution or a huge research effort to really uh, understand um, kind of the phenomenology of consciousness and all its different capacities. Hmm. We are the, at- thing, the thing about uh, moving into higher states of consciousness, though, you have to be willing to let go of where you are. You know, you can't be the butterfly without letting go of being a caterpillar. And perfect guys, guys, perfect. But then look what's, hap- look what's happening in our world, right? Guys, the whole guys, world is like a guys, cocoon that's being poured apart. Yeah. Guys, we're at the top yeah. of the hour. We have to let go of this part of the program. We will be back. My guests this morning are Georgia Lambert. And Daniel Pinchbeck, we're discussing consciousness here and somewhere else. And do we, can we physically return? Can we reincarnate? Is there such a thing phenomenologically as literal reincarnation? Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Of midnight.com. 
Talk Radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's the witching hour here in uh, the Land of Enchantment. I wonder where that term, the witching hour, came from. It's the other side of midnight now, officially, here in New Mexico. It's been way on the East Coast where uh, Daniel Pinchbeck is uh, speaking from tonight. It's it's not quite there yet over on the uh, West Coast where Georgia is hanging out. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this idea of communication reliable communication my impression is for whatever reason and i really did get this feeling and i cannot again it's so frustrating to be able to prove the stuff you're you're working on um i got the feeling of a, almost like an inhibition that communication is if not frowned upon it's incredibly limited and it either is limited by intention that's why i'm kind of intrigued with your uh, grandmother, uh, the statement you made that 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 the that the shaman said your grandmother was inhibiting you from looking deeply into these areas, because that's almost the impression I've gotten. The communication is not free; that it comes with strings, it has parameters, and therefore I'm very distrustful of people who you know act as if they can you know just open the lines of communication like they're on a telephone. I think it's much more difficult and chancy and uh, dependent on other factors and not really the simple uh, wanting to know or wanting to communicate. What do you guys think? Yeah, I I mean, I think, I mean, I think it feels like there are other laws of these occult realms that uh, we're just not capable of understanding as of yet. Although we can have kind of like, um, you know, kind of an intuitive, um, you know, we, we, sort of, we sense the, intuitively the shape of them. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely think the Frederick Myers uh, stuff is very interesting where he talks about, you know, the, the, the sort of distorting, uh, you know, medium uh, in between this, the, that world and this world, which makes it so difficult for messages to be conveyed properly. Um, but, but, but Richard, I think I mentioned to you that before we started that I was only going to go with you for two hours, uh, cause I have to get up early and, and do my course tomorrow and prepare for it. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So I, I think I'm going to bow out uh, at this point and they, hopefully some of your listeners will join. Uh, I think we gave them. Well, let's, the, let's, uh, let's, 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 let's not leave you in the lurch. Tell them how they can reach you to sign up for the seminar. Tell them about the discount, you know, do it properly. And then. You may go with grace of whomever. Okay, thanks so much. 
Yeah. So uh, essentially, um, it's um, uh, the, the the website is theliminalinstitute.com, uh, which I believe you put in the uh, in the website, right? It's C H E L I M I N A L Institute I N S T I T U T E dot com. There's a direct link to at courses. the top of your section of radio. Perfect, pictures. perfect, perfect, perfect. Then you go to courses. And the classic course is called Crossing the Threshold: uh, Realms of Consciousness Beyond Physical Death. And then you use the uh, code Crossing Sale Five Zero Crossing Sale Fifty. And that gives you 50% off of the um, ticket price. So instead of $200, it would be $100 for the four sessions. So I really hope that some of the listeners here are intrigued and want to come join us. And I really appreciate you having me back on. And it was a really fun conversation. It was great to meet uh, Georgia also. Well, thank you. And again, how long does your four-part uh, seminar last? How many? Uh, it's, well, e- e- each session is three hours. And, and by the way, if people can't make a live session, of course, they'll all be recorded. Uh, so they can play it back another time. Uh, you know, the, the value of being in the live session is we'll have a, you know, Q&A period, a conversation. You know, I'm sure there'll be lots of people with very interesting experiences, much like what we've been discussing. And um, some of the time we'll be uh, kind of building our, our community and, and our kind of community of practice and understanding and so on. So, yeah, it'll be, it'll be four three-hour sessions every Sunday for the next month starting tomorrow. Ah, that's what I wanted. It's it's once per week starting the 5th tomorrow at noon exactly. Eastern. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Super. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good, buddy. Thank you so much. And Lovely meeting you, Daniel. Good to meet you, George. Have a great night. You too. <laughs> yeah. Good night, Dan. Well, Georgia, it, yes. looks, it, it looks like we're finally alone. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to yeah. do? What are we going to talk about? Well, we could make little... Um, Jungle gyms for the mice. That, what do you think of that? I mean, come on. Am I totally nuts? Because I've been watching and recording. I've got a notebook. I'm actually writing them down. The mice have been performing absolutely bizarre things. And yesterday, which was the two and a half year anniversary of Robin's unfortunate leaving, Something else really incredibly weird happened. And I'm going to just tell you the story, and then you can tell me what you think. Um, there's a regular schedule here where I'm in the middle of nowhere, so you have to you know, put your big garbage cans out for the big trucks to roll by on Thursday around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And you have to put them out by Wednesday night. You know, my schedule is so weird. Sometimes I do it in the evening on Wednesday. Sometimes I'm still up, so I do it early morning on Thursday. Anyway, you know, I I, I trundle this big green thing with wheels with the bags inside up the driveway, up the hill, and put it up on the the road, which is a cul-de-sac. It's, you know, it comes one way. The trucks can only come in one way and then leave one way. So in the in the in the morning or in the afternoon when I you know actually sometimes get up, the first thing I do is look with binoculars at the trash can to see if they picked up the trash. And I, I noticed that the this time the uh, the lid was closed, so I couldn't tell. So I had a bunch of other stuff to do, and then later um, on on Friday uh, afternoon I look in and see if they bothered to pick it up, and lo and behold they had. But in the empty green trash can with big wheels, 
there was this praying mantis sitting oh. inside on the side, very near the top. And I used to raise praising, praying mantises when I was a kid. You know, uh, long, long story, you know, lots of interaction with praying mantises. I find them fascinating, incredibly intriguing and all that for some reason. Anyway, um, I didn't want the little guy or gal to obviously get, you know, crushed by me moving right. the thing or the lid. Or, so I put my hand in so I could get him out. And instead, he falls down to the bottom of the trash can. And it's much too deep for me to reach down in. I didn't want to tip it over because I thought maybe something bad could happen. So I looked around. I'm in the middle of wilderness for a long branch that I could reach down and have him climb onto, extricate him carefully from the bottom of this big green wheeled can with a lid and set him free safely. And I, you know, come back, you know, like 30 seconds later across the driveway, I found a yucca plant that had died and the central stalk had fallen over and it was, you know, fossilized and it was perfect. And I go back to the, um, to the trash can, gently open the lid, look in, and he's gone. And I'm thinking, okay, well, in the interim, he figured out how to, you know, climb up the side. Or, he, these little guys can fly. You know, mm-hmm. This is a flying variety. And they're very good at flying sometimes. Anyway, if, if, if they're too big, they can't fly very well. But this was a small one, maybe, you know, a youth maturing. So he, he could fly because he flew to the bottom of the uh, of the camp. So I just closed the lid, you know, after making sure he really wasn't in there. And I'm holding the stick in my right hand and I'm pulling the can behind me with my left. And about halfway down the driveway, down the hill, I look at my wrist holding the stick and he's sitting on my wrist and he's looking at me. And you know how they have these triangular tetrahedral looking heads? Yeah, sure. And they, they, they will, I used to sing to them and they would respond to singing. They responded, they they had this incredible way. They would tilt their head kind of like the RCA uh, Victor dog, kind of sideways and, and look at you like they were focusing, like they were paying attention. Well, this little guy, you know, I, I talked to him, you know, I used to talk to the other ones. And I said, oh, there you are. How the heck did you get there? And I reached out, you know, I stopped with a can, let that momentarily sit on this hill reached out my left hand to move him off my wrist so he'd fly away. And instead, remember, he had flown away from me when he was on the edge of the can. Normal response, right? Right. Now he flies directly toward my face and lands in my beard. (laughs) And I can feel him, but I can't see him, of course. And I'm terrified I'm going to do something like he'll fall off. I'll step on him. You know, that would be really dumb. So I carefully move the rest of the way down the driveway, you know, put the can where it's supposed to be, put the stick on top, go in through the garage, close the door, go directly to the bathroom, to the big mirror, so I can see where the hell he is. And he's clinging to my throat at the base of my beard, 
and he's preening himself. <laughs> now, they don't do that if they're in an unhappy mode, if they're scared or, or you know, destabilized, whatever. He was, like, perfectly at home at the base of the beard before, you know, my neck begins. And there, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, okay, now how can I get this guy gently off my throat and get him outside? And so I reached with one hand, it wouldn't quite work. I reached with the other hand and he, I, I, I touch him in the wrong place and he turns around and they flare their wings in a kind of a defense uh, aggression response. So he wasn't, <clears throat> unconscious he wasn't <clears throat> unaware of where he was he just was very determined to be where he wanted to be <laughs> so i i finally got got him onto my i think it was my left hand and i'm walking with him through the house to the uh doorway again so i can let him out and i take him to one of my evergreens, which is hanging over the side porch. And after great difficulty, he didn't want to leave my hand. He abs- And he kept looking at me with those, you know how they have these large eyes? Mm-hmm. And when it's in sunlight, the large eyes look like they put on sunglasses. They go black. Normally, they're transparent. They're whatever color the mantis is. But in bright sunlight, they go black. <clears throat> So there he is looking at me quizzically, not wanting to leave my left hand. And with some difficulty, I got him to step off onto the lower branch of one of the pine trees that hangs over the uh, the side porch. And I quickly backed away, went into the garage again, closed the door because I didn't want him, you know, getting trapped in there and all that. And I came in and then I kept thinking, why would this creature which moments before had been afraid, suddenly be so attracted and so determined to fasten himself on my person and leave under, you know, only, you know, serious persuasion. And then I realized what day it was, and it was exactly two years and six months to the day since Robin died. Aww. Well, you know, and I can't prove any of this, which I know, I know, but frustrating. Well, you know, I mean, also animals respond to your particular field or frequency. And um, uh, that's why, you know, some people are just animal people. You know, in the East, there used to be, and I don't know if they still do this, but in some monasteries, where people would apply to be monks or chilas. Um, at a certain level of training, one of the, um, the uh, tests that they would put their chilas through is they would put them into a pit with vipers. And the test was to sew at one with the consciousness around them no no animal would turn on itself. And so the chila would at one in consciousness with um, the, the snakes and would just radiate this harmlessness that they wouldn't be bitten. So a lot has to do with, with your own frequency as well. 
Mm. You have to be receptive to that kind of stuff. Uh, as as you know, Richard, my, my daughter is a, a senior trainer at the San Diego Wild Animal Park, and she deals with all kinds of different species. And um, at one time she was on uh, the, the run with the doles, which are a, a, a wild dog, and they have a big enclosure. Uh, they're not in cages or anything. Mm. Yet. They have a big doles? wide open enclosure. Doles. D-O-H-L-E, I think, or D-H-O-L-E. What kind of species um, are they? I've never heard they of them. Look, they look kind of like foxes, but they're, but they're definitely can, uh, Canadae. And uh, anyway, so they, they, they're beautiful little animals, and she, she loves them. And she was on patrol, and she saw uh, this huge rattlesnake uh, on its way right into the dole enclosure. And uh, she didn't want to kill the snake because, you know, you don't want to just kill animals, but she couldn't put the doles at risk either. So she just intuitively uh, tried to connect with the snake, which was now stopped. It was just sunning itself. And she told the snake that it needed to get out of there. And she pictured um, a way that it could get out without hurting itself and yet get out of the dole enclosure and she focused on it for a few moments and sure enough the snake kind of woke up and went exactly the route that she had pictured in her mind oh my my so some people just you know have that kind of knack you know the 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 praying mantises in india as where they keep them as pets they make them little golden collars with little golden leashes Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I've always felt they were special. And, you know, there's this whole cadre of, um, uh, you know, general Internet knowledge, you know, aliens, ETs, uh, with mantis-like characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. And I've often wondered if there is some kind of connection because, you know, once life gets to a certain 3D evolutionary stage, you can make life forms in any form or shape you want to look at CRISPR technology look at all the current you know genome work and genetics and all that so I've often wondered where did mantises come from because they do not act like insects they act like little conscious beings and this guy was just it was it was his his turn was 180 degrees from being afraid of me to being so attached that he wouldn't leave all in the space of, you know, a couple, three minutes. You know, getting back to to uh, what we were discussing earlier about, um, you know, how easy it is for those on the other side to contact us. Uh, again, or how not so easy. Or, or not so easy. Um, you know, we don't know the, the bigger picture of the environment that they're in. However... Uh, as I was saying before, the metaphysical model is that we are multi-layered beings. And the densest level is, of course, this dense physical animal body. The next level up is what the Hindus call the Nadis system, N-A-D-I-S. This is uh, a system of electrical lines of light that conform to the physical nerves. 
And so um, kind of like the an, Chinese meridian system. Yes, exactly. The, the meridian system would be a part of that. Um, it, it shows up on Korean photography, you know, where they show a, a leaf being cut away and you still see the light structure of the leaf intact. Eventually it fades out. So when somebody dies, and, and they drop their physical body, everything else is still in place. That, that system of natus is still in place. And so you have lots of stories of people showing up to say goodbye, and they look like them, and uh, only better, you know, if they've lost a limb, they're now whole, or if they died at 90, there are, you know, they're probably in their 30s or 40s or at their peak. Uh, and there's lots of stories about people, you know, uh, coming by to, to say goodbye, but that's usually in a pretty short window because stages of death go on to dissolve that layer. Otherwise, you would always look like you. You could, you know, we were talking about reincarnation in this segment. Uh, otherwise, you could never be another gender or another ethnicity. So that etheric structure that Curlian structure, if you like, has to dissolve so that you can be something else. And that's part of the shedding of the layers process. But as long as that's intact, it's a lot easier for someone freshly passed to communicate because they're closer uh, to the, the physical dense animal body. Well, if, if my reportage is re- reflecting reality, and, you know, these extraordinary ability of the mice to do geometric things. And, I mean, normally mice eat candy corn. They don't, they don't store it in a special place in a plastic thingy and let it accumulate and accumulate over weeks. Um, and, and that phase passed because eventually they did all eat that candy corn. It all went away when I, when I, when I moved the trap. They suddenly thought, okay, it's now okay. And they... They dissolved the temple and ate every little, you know, piece of candy corn. But, <laughs> but it, so, so it's not, it's not frozen. It's temporally dynamic. It's changing and it's changing according to, I don't know what laws, because that's the part I'm trying to figure right. out. Um, are there periods of the year? We talked about, you know, the physical yeah. changes over the year when it's easier to communicate when I can get more direct information and other times of the year when it's very, very difficult. That's part of what I'm looking at. The other part is what we talked about earlier, which was the inhibition. It's almost like hostage in the beginning was almost like hostage videos. It was snapshots containing a lot of symbolic information all wrapped up together. Like, um, well, I, I won't get into the deeply personal, but you know, it's like right. it's like there was a signature that was uniquely Robin, uniquely mm-hmm. Robin. The last direct communication was the most baffling of all, and it was even more baffling because, as all good science, it was redundant. I specifically remember it was the morning, it was dawn of December 22nd, 2019. It was the winter solstice right a few months after Robin died in March. 
and I was, you know, one of those rare times when I actually had gotten to bed earlier and I was sleeping and I had this bizarre experience. I thought it was a dream where someone sat on the side of the bed that Robin used to be on and physically depressed the mattress. I, I could physically feel, in fact, it, it, it was so real, it, it woke me up. And There are actually lots of, lots of uh, anecdotal stories about that kind of phenomena. It's not, it's not an uncommon phenomena. Well, to me it was. <laughs> anyway, well, yeah. the next part was there was this bizarre message and it was it, it it felt very robotic and mechanical almost like i was interacting with an ai as opposed to robin the robin that i knew there was there was no trace of robin's yeah. personality it was very mechanical it mm-hmm. was this feeling of love but it wasn't human love. It was, it was much more like an AI. It was like you'd imagine a robot would express affection and a goodbye. And I dismissed it totally at the moment as just a wacko dream. And I turned over and tried to go back to sleep. And lo and behold, 30 seconds later, it happened again. Because I had looked over and, of course, you know, she wasn't there. So I thought it's in my head. But again, the feeling of the bed depressing. And then it was almost like a tape, almost like a video, reran exactly the same message. This overwhelming feeling of, and this sounds bizarre, mechanical love. Not her personality, not any aspect of Robin that I knew, but this overwhelming kind of radiance, but coming from some instrumentality source as opposed to a human emotional source and then a goodbye and that was the last direct communication with something I had and that was um, a year and six months ago to the night to the day and and now we're into this realm where you know the mice are doing weird things the insects are doing weird things but it's not it's not Robin, the Robin that I knew. It's it's at a other it's in another level, but I can't imagine that suddenly I've got all these genius mice who understand the code <laughs> of hyperdimensional geometry. Something is going on and it's still at some level continuing. And it's incredibly frustrating. Well, I think I can speak to your experience with the uh, sense of of um, of the goodbye and the the not Robin intelligence. Uh, do we have enough time before? Not we have really. To we've got it. We've got about we got about two minutes. So let let me do this. If you okay. want to join this conversation, and there's one person in particular I was expecting would kind of join, which was Kinthea, who really loves these shows and. You know, uh, she is very appreciative that she does. Um, and then there's, of course, the audience. If you want to join us uh, in the audience, the area code to call is 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. We've got one of the world's best metaphysicians with us. 
So you've got a chance to ask a question. If you want to tell us a story, if you want to tell us about your experience, if you've got one, by all means, I'd love to hear it. Because if he is a little naked out here all on my very long limb describing these things that a lot of people are going to say, uh uh, Hogan's lost it. He's gone over the deep end. We'll never get him back. Anyway, uh, you are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My remaining guest, my co-host this morning, is Georgia Lambert. If you have any questions, call us at 917-889-8802. We shall return. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out.
welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go, the other side of midnight. Now on Sunday, the 5th, if you want to call us, if you want to tell us a story or ask a question, 417, I'm sorry, 917, oh, my eyes are going, 917-889-8802, 917-889-8802. That's our number. Lines are open. We are waiting for your call. You know, Georgia, this whole idea of, of, of systematic, <laughs> say again? I said I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> okay, dear. Talk about calling me out. Well, <laughs> this is one of your favorite subjects. You know, you can't hide behind the potted plant over there. Yeah, I'm not hiding. It's just that, like, it was so fascinating to listen to both Daniel and Georgia. I'm like, oh, wow. I'm just taking it in and enjoying it. So, You yeah. know, before, before we go too much further, uh, Richard, I want to address your, your experience yeah. that you were talking about. Uh, again, going back to the model of being multi-layered beings, it's kind of like those beautiful ivory balls that you find in the Far East carved from a single block. There's a sphere within a sphere within a sphere, and each one moves independently. Well, we're kind of like that in terms of our layers of subtle matter. You've got the the physical three-dimensional body, and when you vacate it, what does it do? It returns to the dust from whence it came. I I mentioned um, that there's this natus or curlian network that underlies the physical nerves that's in the, the same shape as the, the physical body. It too, once um, discarded, is going to return to the dust from whence it came. But the next layer is called the astral or emotional body. It's, it's a finer layer of matter, um, but it's ovoid. And it, wait, wait, wait. It, when, it, it's what? It, it's what? It's ovoid. It's a big field. It's not in this funny little star shape shape that human beings are, you know, with the head and sticky right. outy arms and legs. Right. It's more. It's more of an ovoid field. And like uh, an egg. Like an egg. Good, and, good. Yeah. Uh, and you can you could think of it as the the surface of a soap bubble with all of these swirling colors mm. that. Any emotion will set these colors in into a swirl. Um, but in the death process, again, way too long to go into, there is a point where that too is discarded as the soul begins to divest itself of these layers. And, and just like the physical body doesn't immediately disappear when you vacate it, it takes a while for it to putrefy and return to the dust from whence it came, unless it's cremated, of course. Well, the same thing is true of the astral body or this astral shell. It is the repository of the emotions and a certain levels of the persona that um, – were specific to that particular incarnation. A lot of ghost phenomena is not the person hanging around. It's this disintegrating astral shell <laughs> that is maintaining itself for a while before it returns to the dust from whence it came. These are, 
are often the things that show up in seance rooms and with some ghost phenomena. Um, there is a, a, a rudimentary consciousness still present within it, but it's not the person. The person has vacated that, but it sticks around for a while, and it can be drawn to the living because if people pay attention to it, they give it energy, and it can maintain itself for a while. So I think that what you were experiencing uh, was the astral shell that had been discarded and um, uh, it was it was part of the the shedding of the layers on her way out. You mean on the on the on the winter solstice night of twenty twenty of twenty twenty two thousand nineteen? Yeah, and that's the other thing that there. Well, are see, hang on. Let, let me interrupt they, because I was kind of expecting something, and here's why: because that's the night, that's the moment in our annual orbit of the sun. When it's the Earth, it's the Sun, and the four million solar mass black hole at the center of the galaxy, which right. is which is some kind of hyperdimensional torsion field gateway. So the fact that these events totally coincided with that geometric alignment in the torsion field model, to me, was one of those eureka moments. It's like, oh my God. This this physics is real, except it appeared to be like she was leaving or something representing her was leaving through a doorway that only obtained for a short time on that night or that dawn. Yeah, yeah well, there's there's that aspect of it, too. You know, the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, which we call Halloween today has always been the time that's been described as the time when the veil between worlds grows thin. But there are other times of the year where this happens also. It also differs uh, with the moon cycle, uh, and it differs in different places. So I, I think you're absolutely right that it has to do with this confluence of various fields that sometimes just line right up and make communication a lot more difficult or a lot easier yes and i would add to that that these energies i mean there's so many ways of perceiving reality so as i was listening to you georgia talking about the soul going and then returning painting i did call fresh wave and it's this ocean wave which is like a hand and it's casting forth this little droplet of water and when you look closely that droplet of water is the fetus representing a, you know, a, a lifespan. And then it's being caught by the other hand of the ocean. And so, like, for a moment, we're separated from that ocean, and we are that individualized consciousness. And then when we go back into the ocean, how would you pick one drop from another? It, and I, but so I, somebody can see uh, is programming influencing, coercing, suggesting that the mice keep doing this stuff. <laughs> Who's doing that? This is not an amorphous sea of, you know, unego defined consciousness. This is someone who's using this bizarre sense of humor she has or has to continually mm -hmm. needle me about the mice. Like it, it, rem it reminds me of that, that movie, The Green Mile. 
where at the end oh, yeah. he has that was the little beautiful. mouth. The mm-hmm. little mouse at the end that was, you know. Well, let me let me give years. you more. Let me give you more data. You know, I do the show here all by myself now, of course, in the in the studio downstairs. When I would do the, stu- the show before, every once in a while, Robin would kind of poke her head down the spiral staircase and look at me or give me a sign. She would actually come down sometimes, although it was harder as she got progressively toward the end, and she'd put it up with a news note or something about. You know, uh, an underground seismic event in North Korea was one of those, I remember. Anyway, so now, of course, she's not here. One night, I'm setting up to do the show, and one of these little guys, and they're very special. They're, they're, a, <laughs> they're, they're a breed of mouse, which is on the endangered species list, only present here in New Mexico, and only supposedly around running water. Now, I'm on a cliff, and if it isn't monsoon season and the, you know, arroyas behind the house are, you know, running with water, it's as I'm in a desert. You know, there's no lily pads, there's no water lilies, there's no running water for miles and miles and miles. So why are these little guys, you know, in my house? One of them, one night I'm setting up for the show, he literally comes into the studio, runs around my feet, then climbs <laughs> up one of the cables to the uh, console for the mixer, which is on the bookshelf beside me. And Mm -hmm. then he moves over to a large stuffed cat that Robin got me for a birthday gift way back when my Sidonia research got into the whole realm of cats and lions and feline hominid fusions, et cetera, et cetera. The face on Mars being happy line, all that stuff. This cat, which is sitting, I'm looking at it right now behind one of the lamps, is a big, it's about two feet high, big stuffed cat with a silly expression. And this little guy climbed up, sat on its left shoulder. When I'm looking at it, it'd be on the right-hand side. And as I'm opening the show, Kinthea, this little guy goes to sleep, closes (laughs) his eyes. Remember, this is a wild creature that they run it. Warp nine when I see them in the living room or in the kitchen. They're they're not, you know, communicating at all. This little guy literally is facing me on the arm of this cat that was a special gift because of its symbolic significance to my work from Robin. And he goes to sleep with this beatific grin. His eyes are closed and he's grinning. And then about uh, an hour, no, 45 minutes into the show, he gets up and leaves exactly like Robin would do when she was bored and enough of this. You know, I'd spend too much time in the opening. You know, I hadn't gotten to the guest or something like that. But it was like, it was so her, but it was this little creature who's on the endangered species list. On her Say again? You have a caller. Oh, we have a caller. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I have another cat story, but, um, oh, it's John. Okay. This is Jonathan Womack, who is one of our back-of-the-envelope supporters. He's done all kinds of interesting work. He's been a guest a couple of times on the show. John, you're on the air. How are you doing, Richard? Great show. Well, thank you. Hi, John. Hi there. Hi, John. (laughs) Hi, Cynthia. Um, 
Yeah, really good show, Richard. <clears throat> I'd like to hear your cat story, but I had a home of soul stories I thought I might throw out there because you were earlier with your guest, you were talking about how many souls are on the planet and, and that whole thing, and it just uh, right. it brought the souls to my mind. Well, well go ahead. It's the, it's the sun, and inside the sun, we're, we're all kind of living there right now, our main... Wait a minute, I'm missing that term. It, it, it's, it's, it's the what? Your, your voice is the kind of garbled. Oh, sorry. I'm walking around, so no, I probably have to around. stop. Stay close to the mic, please, please. Yeah, so the sun, our sun, every sun, every, every star, star okay. is an incubator. Yes, that's where we are born, our souls are born. And then we are sent to Earth. You know what I'm going to ask next? How do we know this? This is just my experience. I cannot prove this. But, um... Well, now, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait, wait. The the Egyptians have a mythology where they talk about stars, the sun, as doorways between dimensions, particularly with relation to Sirius. So the idea that you're proposing is not as wacko as you would think, because in the physics, the biggest local gate to a higher dimension is is the sun. And the alignment between Earth and sun and the center of the galaxy creates a hyper doorway. And that's when that last message, again, ostensibly from Robin, came through twice, redundancy. So the idea, John, is not off the wall it's very interesting yeah and you know the black black star at the center of the the galaxy is just a big sun it's a sun too and um there's a gabillion souls when i visit the home of souls i go out of body i go through the tunnel when you're flying at the speed of touch and then i'm there i'm flying over the sun it's incredible you fly into the sun and it's so vast the vastness is incredible and um, you go in the sun and I guess an analogy I would use is if you were flying above the streets of Manhattan and you're surrounded by buildings and there's people in the buildings there's people down on the streets there's people all around you some of them you know when I I'm, I'm flying through it's all clouds in the sun it's not streets and buildings but it's like that there's all these orbs and there are other people and there's a gabillion of them. In there. I don't know how many, but there are many, many. And you hear this music, and it's your fingerprint or your brain print or your soul print, I guess. And it's beautiful, so beautiful. And it leads you into your, you have this area in the sun, and it's your home where you were born. And you have a fam, you know, these other family members there that you reincarnate with. It's pretty cool. It's the most awesome place, actually. I can't even tell you how awesome it is, but um, that's where we all are, and we send part of us to Earth, and um, I just released a podcast on Wednesday, Living Life Between Lives, where I sit down with uh, Scott DeTamble, who does the in-between life uh, hypnotic hypnotherapist regression, and um, yeah, we talk about where the, your parents or your guides might send you to another planet 
depending on what lesson it is. So I think as far as right now, the souls being on earth, there's a lot of souls here now that came here because of this 2012 wave that we're in. Which is the end of the processional cycle, the end of the Vedic cycle. It's where all these curves, Georgie, when I've talked about this extensively, now is when it's happening and it doesn't happen mm-hmm. uh, for 26,000 years. It's like there's this window where um, every my grandmother had this old saying, you know, uh, time is God's way of keeping everything from happening at once. Well, it's almost like time is breaking down and we're getting overlaps and echoes of things yeah. happening at once. Yeah. And, you know, this <clears throat> this whole uh, evening has been, you know, the main focus has been on reincarnation. And what we need to do is realize that our view of this for the past 2000 years has been religious and philosophical. And it's now time to bring in the science because that's the age that we're moving into. And wait, we wait, 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 develop- wait, wait, you mean bring back the science? Or, yeah, bring back the science. We, we can develop uh, instrumentality that can begin to detect these subtle layers, They're, these layers of life that are going on right here in the same space but in a different frequency. And we're just on the verge of that. And so whether you come at it from a scientific side or a philosophic side or a religious side, um, we're all we're all trying to reach the same top of the mountain where the truth is. Hmm. Uh, John, if the sun as a star is a repository, I would almost think more it was like a gateway, which means every star is a gateway to the same domain, the same dimension where all these un um, what's the word I'm looking for unmanifested bodies hang out while they're waiting for their chance, their slot, their opportunity in, in uh, 3D. So it's not that well, they're in the sun, it's that the sun is a gateway to where they are. That could be. Uh, in Robert Monroe's book, he talked about the rings around Earth, and the rings are made up of souls waiting to come here. The innermost ring is, you know, they're going to, be here pretty quick their next life is coming right up and the outer rings they're they're waiting you know they're at the end of the line and uh, years ago years ago when i did the voyage beyond apollo i had norman mailer on the ship as one of my guests we we you know kind of took her down and parked her offshore to watch the last night launch of apollo 17 which was an incredible experience i had isaac asimov i had sagan I had, I had a whole bunch of people. Anyway, Norman Mailer gave a presentation called Search for the Thanatosphere, which is a Greek word meaning souls. And he alluded to this idea that there's all these folks waiting in the wings somewhere above the planet in, I don't think he used the term rings, but, you know, it, it was kind of all three-dimensional. And I'm wondering if it can be hyperdimensional meaning it's not physically waiting above this planet in 3d there's a conduit there's a mechanism of going back and forth and it's those opportunities that souls are waiting for and you can't manifest on earth unless you've got a body yeah there's there is time on the other side georgia and i were talking about this before where 
but it happens in cycles. So, yeah, looking at uh, the the Earth from the spirit world is is a very different thing. But time, there is time there, and you're waiting in line. And um, I, I had said to Georgia about it. It seemed to me like the planet spinning around, working the torsion field, had something to do with it. And it's this whole astrology mm-hmm. thing. Who knew? And that that seems to be the case in my experience. Do you remember a couple, three years ago, Georgia, and this is going to sound really wacko and off the wall, but it, it, it's not. Oh, you mean in, in contradistinction to the rest of tonight? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we, we have now gone, you know, into, the, into Rod Serling's territory. When Robin died, because she had spent, as ill people do, at the end, a lot of time in the bathroom. A lot of time that she never let anyone know about. And after she had died, that bathroom did not work for a couple of months. When you tried to use it, the water would run and run and run. And you have to do all kinds of things to make it stop. And I dissembled it. I'm you know, fairly good mechanically. Took it apart, put it back together. Nothing was physically wrong. It just kept running for a major period of time. And the reason I thought this was really interesting is because Robin was the one at Coral Castle who found Lead Scowlin's metaphor in water, the basin underneath one wall of his Coral Castle there in Florida, where he would do his shaving and morning ablutions. And right above it, above this water basin, which was an analog for the torsion field, you know, water, fluid, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He put this double tetrahedron on the wall. He carved it right in the wall. And across this 10-acre, you know, place, Robin spotted this symbol and drew me over to it and said, look at that. And, of course, we understood the, the language of what Lee Scalm was trying to say. Water was an analogy for the invisible torsion field. Well, I got wondering one day, was the constantly running water for like a half hour in the bathroom that was only stopped at great physical, you know, I had to do jiggling and mechanical stuff and all that. Was it some form of communication because the metaphor of the vorticity of water was the same as the metaphor of the vorticity of the connecting torsion field whereby she was communicating. Then you told me in the same time frame that you had the same experience thousand miles away of a damn running toilet would not, that would not stop. Yeah, well, water is, is an age-old symbol of that fluid field. Um, I, I remember when I moved into a house that I had lived in uh, before, um, the only people that had lived there before us were uh, very rabid born-again Christians and not very physically clean. And so we came in with a whole group of people, you know, meditating, having classes in the house. We physically scrubbed the house and the oven, it had never been cleaned from top to bottom. That is one that, hell of a picture. <clears throat> Unclean Christians. <laughs> yeah, that first week, 
honest to God, that first week, everything related to water in that house broke. The sprinklers front oh. and back, all of the toilets and the three bathrooms, all of the sinks, everything related to water just blew. Oh, this is so interesting. Um, Ron's on hold. Yeah, I, I, I can see Ron. Let's bring Ron in. Ron, you're going to have to be quick. This is our resident generalist, Ron Gerbron. Ron, what do yes. you got for today? Okay, yeah, well, I, I didn't have anything relevant prior to this. I've just been listening. But they, it came up about waiting in line for your soul to come into um Yeah, you got to have a vehicle. A body. you got to wait until there's an empty vehicle. Uh, who polices the line? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I hear that I've heard this, you know, under ten different variations, and I'm going. Okay, who keeps the line organized? The same entity or body or police force that limits communication to very weird and obscure symbolic thingies that you have to work like hell to try to figure out. Mm-hmm. Unless well, can it's I... The I think it has to do with our multi-layered being. I mean, our our humanity doesn't understand it, but our multi-layered self does understand. I think it's a, an agreement we make because if we came here already knowing everything, then what would be the test? It's a test of energy. It's, a, it's an experiment of consciousness. Yeah, and these are all models and ideas, and we don't know if they're true or not, and that's the very frustrating part. Like the running water thing in the bathroom, it eventually healed it. Okay, it, 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 it basically fixed itself. Um, and I didn't do a damn thing. So I'm, I'm wondering oh. constantly, um, was it because she was unable to do that or that mode, that moment of communication passed, and then she moved into other areas, finally, you know, grappling with the consciousness of, uh, of mice and mantises? I think it was you. It's bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Hey, guys, I want to thank everyone. Um, This has been a very intriguing conversation. I think we're going to have to do this again. And uh, I just have to pick the right time when I can gird my loins to do it again. I want to thank all my guests this morning, um, Georgia Lambert, Daniel uh, Pinchbeck, and my callers, John, Jonathan Womack, and Ron Gerbron. We will do this again. Tomorrow night, radical change of subject. We're going to talk about 9-11. Until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.